Moss. Randy Moss is in for a touchdown. Oh, Al Harris playing off. Bit up on the route, and Randy Moss, without even really being able to run, as he shoots the moon to the fans here in Green Bay. That is a disgusting act by Randy Moss. And welcome to the Sportscasters. It is episode 34 here, August 2nd, 2011. We are getting closer and closer to the start of football season, just about one month away now. My name is Steve Bennett. I'm here with my co-host, Don Russ. How are you doing today, Don? Awesome. Can't wait for football. We are pumped up about football. we got a great show lined up for you today. And Andrew Perloff from the Dan Patrick Show, known as McLovin is going to be on the podcast today. We recorded that interview a little bit earlier, and it was awesome. Andrew was a great dude. I'm really excited for everyone to hear that interview. Also, we have Katie Baker from Grantland.com on to talk a little bit about her columns on Grantland and about the development of Bill Simmons' new project, Grantland. And we also have a former NFL scout to talk a little bit about the rookies who are coming into the league. His name is Dan Shanka, and he is from a website called rlads.com. And I had noticed him retweeted by someone, uh, and he's got some really great football information and knowledge. He's been in the business for 39 years. He kind of talks about football similar to the way Mike Lombardi does. You just know that he knows it at a level different than I do. And we really enjoyed our time with him as well. So we got three interviews today. We also have five on fantasy. Don and I are going to talk a little bit of fantasy football later in the show. We have a book club update and announcement of a future guest. A couple things before we get started. Uh, we do get email occasionally, thesportscasters at gmail.com. And I got an email from a guy named Clay Parker a few weeks ago. And I just wanted to acknowledge it, thank him for the email. He recently wrote a, uh, a column or a piece for Strength and Speed Newsletter. And if you want information, you can email him. It's parkerclay at hotmail.com. And he's got a really cool kind of tournament to de- determine the greatest athlete. And he did a really great job with it. And I wanted to thank him for reaching out and just wanted to recommend you look up his article in the Strength and Speed Newsletter. Also, over the weekend... I was lucky enough to meet a former guest, Tim Graham of the ESPN.com, now of the Buffalo News. We bumped into each other at a Tragically Hip concert. I know some of you may only be familiar with the hip from us queuing it every week, but uh, they are a Canadian rock band that played right under the Skyway in Buffalo over the weekend, and I was lucky enough to meet Tim Graham, and he was a great, great dude, really nice, genuine guy. I wanted to say hello to Tim. He was, had some really encouraging words about the podcast and said he'd come on anytime, help us get guests. You know, we've been lucky, Don. We've met some people and made some connections and some contacts, the people who really want to look out for us and really enjoy the work we do. And uh, I'm really grateful for that. And I wanted to say hello to Tim and uh, thank him for being such a kind guy. He probably was a little weirded out when some short, fat, little Italian guy was tapping <laughs> him on the, uh, on the elbow. Excuse me, are you Tim? <laughs> also seen Buffalo Sabre Nate Gerby. Yeah, I heard Pat Coletta was there. Pat Coletta I saw as well. Usually uh, ex-Sabre Brian Campbell is around. Didn't too, see him. Yeah. Didn't see former Sabre, Sabre Yui Krupp or Dave Snuggerud. I didn't know they were hip fans. Neither did I, but I'm just saying I didn't they see them there. They weren't there either. No. Okay. So 
that's about it for now. Let's do three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about uh, former U.S. women's skiers, but... Uh, you don't? I don't. But one of them was recently in the news, and it's a short little blurb, so I'll read the whole thing. I don't know where the credit is from. I just saw a screenshot of the newspaper, which is strange, online. But it says, A former U.S. ski team member has described fighting off a black bear by punching it in the face. Mm. Annie Haas squared up to the animal when she realized she could not outrun it, but still suffered cuts to her arms and chest. The freestyle skier, 24, who was mauled when she got between the animal and her cubs while running in the woods in Minnesota or Montana, U.S., said, I am so fortunate that I walked away from the incident. A wild animal attack has been one of my biggest fears and something I have always worried about. I was lucky she was the size she was, and I was able to strike her in the head a few times. <laughs> So, yeah, Annie Haas. title of the article was, I fought off a bear by punching it in the face. <laughs> you got to give uh, some credit to that girl for that. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. I mean, punching someone in the face is usually frowned upon, but I guess when you're face-to-face with a bear, yeah. you do what you can do to survive. Now, would that be of your first thing? Would you have punched it in the face? Or I think most people have been told to or think that they should play dead but i've actually read recently that the opposite's true you should stand your ground just stand up to the bear and punch it in the face i think usually the idea is that they're just bluffing like a lot of animals will bluff charge you it's called i don't know why i know so much about animal attacks but (laughs) like they'll bluff charge you to try to scare you away but uh this one didn't wasn't playing i mean that's what they say you should never do is try to get between your cubs and but i'm sure that wasn't her intention All right, my first thing, I think it's good news for the National Hockey League, although I'm not certain. Versus has changed its name, or is in the process of changing its name once again, to the NBC Sports Network. In the last six years, this will be the third name for Versus. They started as the OLN, or Outdoor Life Life Network. Network, I think, yeah. And then they transitioned to Versus, which was a terrible name. And now they have been rebranded by NBC, and this is part of the larger merger that we talked about with, I think, Richard Deitch last time he was on, of NBC and Comcast. This versus is owned by Comcast, which is now owned by NBC, and they have named their network instead of versus. They're going to go with the NBC Sports Network. And another friend of ours and former podcast guest, Travis Hughes, wrote a piece about the name change on Sports Nation on their general Sports Nation hockey site. And he thinks it's great news for the NHL. Uh, A quote, quick quote here. uh, It says, This effort is a major step towards a complete strategic alignment of all of our platforms and businesses. And that's from NBC Sports Group Chairman Mark Lazarus. And it's part of the article that Travis Hughes wrote. And personally, I think it's great news for the NHL. And another part that kind of emerged from this article and from this name change is that the Winter Classic is going to be on January 2nd this year. Why? Because there's football games all day on the 1st. right. So they're going to go. It's going to be the Philadelphia Flyers and the Rangers at Citizens Bank Park, the home of Major League Baseball's Phillies, 
one o'clock, and I'm sure that the that 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 day is the day that the name I believe is going to change. January second, I believe, is the date for the name change. Yes. Interesting. January second. At the very least, it'll attach itself to a big league name instead of just being virtual. It just sounds so much better, right? You, right. Do you want to turn? Can you turn on the NBC Sports Network? Right. That sounds like something people are going to remember or have heard of as opposed to hey can you put the game on it's on versus yeah in between fishing and poker um my second thing just a few quick hits on football in general randy moss retires and he joins carson palmer yeah uh, in their probably both pretend retirements right i mean can you what is what's the over under that both of them stay retired? It can't be. I think Randy Moss is the more likely to stay retired. I've heard people think he might stay retired just because he's so unpredictable, and like for him to just fade away or not fade away, but just kind of abruptly run away from the league would not totally shock them because nothing he does shocks people anymore. You think it's a bluff? I don't know that it's a bluff. I really believe that uh, he didn't like the offers he got. Not necessarily monetarily, but maybe he wants to go. He wants to go somewhere he can prove himself. He's not going to do that. I don't know where he got offers. But. You know, he's maybe a guy that can fit in later in the season when injuries happen. Maybe right. there'll be an opportunity that comes up, a quarterback he's willing to work with, something like that. Yeah. And uh, the strange thing is Tennessee actually kind of has a quarterback he can work with now, and he's leaving there. So, But it, may, it might not be his choice. Um, also... Chad Ochocinco, Mr. Twitter, number 85, and Albert Hainsworth, both traded to New England. And you have to kind of wonder when New England is going to – I mean, they, they play with fire a lot because I guess their coach thinks they can tame anybody. And right. to some degree at work with Moss, I mean, maybe not totally, but uh, I don't know. Ochocinco, I guess, is not a bad guy to his teammates, I suppose. Yeah, I think Ochocinco – Good guy. I think his teammates will like him. I think he has an interesting relationship with Belichick, something that's been documented right. on the NFL Network through some of NFL films. Hainsworth is more the weird one. I mean, he was... Well, Hainsworth just seems so uninterested in football. Right, right. And I guess the question is, is if it's probably worth a flyer... Because he's dominant when he plays? Because he's dominant if he's good. And New England is... From the standpoint, Bill Belichick, who obviously has an ego and is a little bit arrogant and is saying, look it, I can get this guy to play football. Right. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not Mike Shanahan, and I know a different way to reach him, or I know what Mike Shanahan tried, and I know that didn't work, so here's my idea and the way that I'm going to approach it. So I think they're both good moves. When I heard him, I thought... Oh, wow. Okay. That, that's interesting. They're I think, interesting. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I basically wanted to hit on, the two of the more interesting moves. I have uh, two other players that were on the move in the five on fantasy. Okay. So we'll so hit we'll on that more that later. Time. My second thing, pretty interesting story. I got it on usatoday.com, but it's all over. ESPN, with the help of Trent Dilfer, has, dis- has come up with a new – rating system for quarterback and they're going to call it the total quarterback rating system and it's going to debut in a show this friday august 5th at 8 p.m and it's part of the year of the quarterback series i don't know if you remember the documentary about tom brady that they aired earlier in the year and they've been doing the interviews with john gruden and the quarterbacks as part of this series and dofer made some good points just saying that the old way that 
quarterbacks are rated is very confusing. It's hard for fans to understand and keep track of. A perfect rating is 158.3, which is ridiculous. This new system goes from 0 to 100. And it's just not that accurate, the old system. Right. So, yeah, the the total QBR is what it's called, and it's measured on a point scale rating from 1 to 100. A rating in the 70s indicates a Pro Bowl caliber quarterback, while a passer who warrants a rating in the 50s is considered average. So it's going to be really easy to understand. 50 is average, 70 is good, over 70 is above average, right? Or great. Right. And then below 50 is terrible. From that point of view, it'll be easier to understand. From the point of view uh, of actually trying to comprehend like the statistics that go into it, it's going to be much harder, but it does seem to make more sense. They said they put an emphasis on things like... Uh, they get, rushes, if the passes, court, if rushes, sacks. But not only if he rushes, but... If he rushes for two yards on a third and one, they consider that more successful than if he rushes for two yards on third and ten. So there's a lot of little things that go into... Fumbles are rated, interceptions, penalties on a per-play basis. Fumble's an interesting one because uh, on your in one of our fantasy football leagues, we talk about how we don't want to nail quarterbacks for fumbles because it's usually time someone it's not blew an fault. assignment on the line. Right. But I guess that's part of your awareness as a quarterback and right. maybe feeling that. I think over time it probably evens out. But. Yeah, and uh, so it sounds like a really interesting show. I'm going to set my TiVo Friday, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern on ESPN. Uh, should be interesting to see how the new passer system takes off. I'd be interesting to see if Football Outsiders does an article about it because it's very much up their alley. They already do things with uh, defensive stops and like aligning or assigning more value to a allowing five yards on a third and ten than they do like on a third and two. Or they set, they have all sorts of crazy statistics on that. And we've too. had Aaron Chats on before. Maybe after this plays out a little bit, we could get him on and he'll talk a little bit more about it or a system that they use to rate quarterbacks. All right, my last thing today, staying with football, Chris Cluey, who is uh, probably quickly becoming a lot of people's favorite punters just because he's one of the only ones you're going to know. But- my last favorite punter. <laughs> Dick. But uh, here's what, here's a little piece him and Donovan McNabb did for the Vikings Network. Here's the contract that they okay. drawn up. It's uh, I, Chris Cluey, hereby relinquish number five to you, Donovan McNabb, in exchange for the following: uh, five mentions of my band, Tripping Icarus, and uh, non-consecutive press conferences. <laughs> you can't just you know go Tripping Icarus, Tripping Icarus, Tripping Icarus. Okay. Um, a uh, five thousand dollar donation, if you would, to Kick Fear Cure to benefit Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy. That's the charity I donate to every year. No problem. And then uh, an ice cream cone, but that one's optional. So, so we go with the donation and then the ice cream cone? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. What are we sign? Uh, right here. Okay. Uh, we can uh, both sign on there. I'll, uh, I'll grab the top one. Okay, so they go on and he signs on a dry erase board that he drew an official symbol on it and then labeled it official symbol. So uh, they were having a little fun with uh, Cluey giving away his number to Donovan McNabb. So hopefully Donovan pays up and... Gives him his $5,000 to his charity and his ice cream cone. Here's what I like. They're having fun. Yes. I love that about it. And I love to see the candid side of athletes like this. I'm a little down on Cluey based on him. <laughs> his comment about Drew Brees. Jumping and- the gun and calling Drew Brees a douchebag, which yeah. I liked. I'm waiting for him to apologize. Maybe he has and I missed it. But yeah, that's cool. That's an interesting yeah, thing. Yeah, so good that's for them and uh, good for the Vikings team in general because that's just something they did for their website apparently. And another note about that, it seems like Chad Ochocinco – was just given his number by Hernandez, tight end. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they didn't charge him or anything. Just wow. gave it to him. Good for him. 
All right, my third thing. The Major League Baseball trade deadline, something we talked about with Ben Nicholson-Smith on episode 32 last week. How about some winners and losers? Well, to me, the biggest loser is the New York Yankees. And I say that because they did, did absolutely nothing. Yeah. Where were the Yankees? Uh, I heard numerous rumors about the Yankees being in on this player or that player, and they didn't, they didn't pull off a move, and everyone around them, it seems like, got better. It's not exactly like the Yankees hit great either. I mean, they could have used a bat. I, right. I think, I think what they're looking for is A-Rod coming back and that being a better trade. You know, them getting A-Rod back is better than any trade they could make. I suppose. And the Twins and the Angels didn't really do a whole lot. The Rays, they're a patient team. Maybe those are some of the losers. Uh, some of the winners, I thought, definitely the San Francisco Giants adding Carlos Beltran. A huge move for them. Uh, the Phillies made another good move, adding Hunter Pence. They just keep getting better. Uh, I thought the Indians definitely good for them to pick up an ace uh, like Ubaldo Jimenez and getting him out of the death trap for pitchers, which is Colorado. <laughs> and also, I thought the Braves did okay as well, uh, improving their offense. But the the Giants, the Braves, Phillies, Indians, and oh, also the Texas Rangers. Definitely did a great job. Uh, they have a, a deep rotation and an extensive offense, uh, but they, they improved their team as well. So props to those teams and thumbs down to the others. By the way, I know hindsight is twenty twenty, and this prediction looked a little bit better at the beginning of the season, but uh, Jeff Passon. Passon's Kansas City Chiefs. Ooh. Royals. Royals, sorry, jeez. Well, he did say next year. Oh, next year. Okay. Yeah, he said that they'd be better this year. Okay. But that next year would be the year that they'd be a legitimate I th- contender. I think they did have a decent beginning of the year, but they've kind of fallen apart lately. They have. So that's three things for today. We're going to take a break in a second. We're going to go right off the top with the Andrew Pirloff interview, and then we'll be back with a book club update and an announcement for a future guest. So we'll be right back with Andrew Pirloff. <laughs> Our next guest is from southeastern Pennsylvania, and as you can hear, is a graduate of Dartmouth College. He has worked for Fox Sports, MajorLeagueBaseball.com, and the National Football League. He is currently a member of the Danettes on the Dan Patrick Show, where he is affectionately known as McLovin. On the show, he is the official blogger and hosts the Danettes After Show with the rest of the crew. He also contributes columns for SportsIllustrated.com. A warm sportscasters, welcome to the talented Andrew Perloff. How are you doing today, Andrew? I'm great. How are you doing? You know, that's the first fight song that we've ever played that had words in it. <laughs> that, that took... It took wait, what was the, wait, what was that fight song? That was the Dartmouth fight song. You know, I was like, is this some bizarre version of Fly Eagles Fly? Because honestly, I don't know that I've ever heard the Dartmouth fight song. Uh, and I went to a lot of Dartmouth football games, but it's not... It's not like Michigan. Let's put it that way. You don't really focus on the fight song there. Yeah, we, you know, we have this thing. We started in the very beginning. We always have brought our guests into their fight songs. And, you know, sometimes people have gone to colleges where we haven't been able to find it because they don't probably don't even really have one. 
But that's the first one with lyrics. So props to Dartmouth uh, bringing us in with the singing, uh, singing fight song. Kind of took me off guard there for a second. But uh, I want yeah, to... Well, yeah. You know, Jay Fiedler threw many a touchdown with that fight song in the background. I just want to point that out. <laughs> that, that he did. <laughs> that he yeah. did. And Lee Stepniak. I don't know if you know Lee Stepniak, but he is an no. NHL, hockey, NHL hockey player from Buffalo, New York, who basically is a self-made pro. Went to Dartmouth basically because he was a really smart kid. Made the hockey team as a freshman. And there was a, a kid on his line named Hugh Jessman who was a, ended up being a, a first-round pick that everyone was coming to scout. And uh, Stepniak caught the eye of the Blues. They drafted him in the fifth round, and uh, oh. he's yeah, he's made quite a bit of money in the league. He's probably about a five or six year pro now. So he's also a wow. Dartmouth uh, Dartmouth grad. Lee Step- oh wait, one guy throw one more out. Brad Alfmuth, Houston Astros catcher, was actually the only real pro in my class at Dartmouth. Wow. So there you go. So now that we've educated everyone on Dartmouth <laughs> athletics. Uh, Is that it? Uh, are we done here? Thank you. That was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks for joining us, Andrew. We'll talk to you later. Uh, so, And it's funny because I, I was talking to my brother. My brother's going to be a Yale athlete next year. Okay. And I, I was talking to him about the interview, and he's a big fan of the Dan Patrick show. And he was one. He's like, oh, yeah, he went to Dartmouth. He's like, you got – so I didn't even have to research. He knew that you were a, you were a Dartmouth <laughs> guy already. So yeah, I think I make, I make Dartmouth – Brad's very unproud with some of the things I say on the Dan Patrick show, but you know, you, you do what you got to do. Since you mentioned it, let's start with the Dan Patrick show. So that's got to be one of the more interesting things you've done in your career. And I guess the question that probably every man who's ever seen the Dan Patrick show would want to know right off the top is what is it like to work in that man cave, that space? Like, how fun is it to just say, all right, we're on commercial, let's, let's, let's play a hole? It's one of those things where when you have something, you immediately take it for granted. We have literally the greatest office in the world. I don't think there's a place I'd rather be, but you're there like five days a week, and, you know, we hit golf balls, we shoot hoops. We totally take it for granted. All the guys, that's amazing thing, you know, we're the Danettes. We basically climbed on the back of Dan Patrick and all his famous, all his hard work in sports. And now we all act like we're the famous ones. <laughs> we totally take it for granted and say things like, you know, Dan, we even, you know, we could use a pool table. Like, aren't you going to treat us well? So basically, your answer is, we do what uh, the last thing you would think we do. We take it for granted, but it's totally awesome. And like today, I ended up staying an hour late because we got in a virtual golf tournament. That's the kind of thing that happens. So Dan gets more work out of us, at least. So. I guess an easy question to follow up would be, what, what is your favorite toy that Dan has blessed you guys with? Is oh, it the, the golf? Basket. I'm a hoop. I'm a basketball okay. player. So it's pretty much a one sport I'm good at, so I get to show that off. Not that I'm great. You know, it's not that I'm Kobe Bryant, but I'm much better than the, my coworkers, so I get to show off my uh, shooting skills on national TV, which, of course, is a lifetime dream of mine. So that's really fun. And Dan, Dan likes basketball a lot, so that's good. Golf is very embarrassing. I've had many a golf pro insult my swing, if you even want to call it a swing. It seems like you guys are kind of creating somewhat of a Howard Stern for sports in the sense yeah. that you guys have the, you have the regular show and now you have an after show, which I think is something that maybe Howard pioneered. And you've been hosting with your, with your mates the after show. How do you like the after show? How did that evolve? What made you guys decide to do that? And, uh, you know, how does that rank in your daily duties as something you enjoy or don't enjoy? 
Well, it's interesting. Actually, we sort of we now rotate the host. I sort of I've I've been host at times. We uh we don't. I'm not the host every day. It's a kind of it's more of a democracy now. So it's sort of an after show for the producer. You're right. The Gary Delabate after show for Howard Stern was very much the model for this. Um, and it, it's kind of interesting. Like you know, we do a three hour show, nine noon Eastern, and then there's always leftovers. I mean, there's always behind the scenes stuff that people find fascinating and that Dan finds fascinating, so there's always room to talk afterwards. And it, it's funny, you know, it, it, it's only a half-hour show. We're like, well, what, what can we fill a half-hour show without Dan Patrick on there? And it always feels like it ends too quickly. There's always so much, there's always behind-the-scenes story. I mean, you know, anytime you book a guest, there's always about 800 hoops you have to go through, and uh, our guest booker will tell us, like, oh, yeah, we, you know, we had, um, you know, we had Clint Hurdle lined up today, but then the pirates called and they weren't happy about the way this was going or something. So we try and tell as many of those stories that we're not supposed to tell on the, what we call the box score, the after show. So it's just a behind the scenes of what happens at a big time sports radio show and people really responded to it. Yeah, people dig that kind of stuff. I know even like on a smaller scale, we did a blog where we kind of took pictures in the studio showing what we were doing and put it up and people really dig that kind of behind the scenes stuff up. Another question I had about the after show is initially you needed to be like a a subscribing member to the site to have access to it, and then at some point there was a decision made to have it be free for everyone. What what kind of went into that decision? Not necessarily that you made it. I don't assume that, but are you are you privy to knowing like what the decision was to make that available to everyone? Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Yeah. You, real, you know, this is pretty complicated, and this is some business stuff that I, I'm not really at liberty to comment on, and I also don't really know because I don't do the business end of it. But we're also, we're basically, we're putting a show on DirecTV um, in the very near future. Within uh, probably a few months, we're going to actually air the show on TV. So originally the show was, was conceived as sort of a... Um, it was conceived as sort of a high-end like web product where you would subscribe to pay three ninety-five. So now it's going to go free on TV if you're a subscriber. So basically, um, they they said, you know, why are we going to give away free on TV and charge on the internet? It doesn't make sense. So instead, they wanted to make it free uh, for both. So basically, we're free on TV, which is a really huge challenge. Being on TV without Dan Patrick, frankly, freaks me out a little bit. But they say we can do it, so I'm going to trust them. Well, I, I, you know what would freak me out? It wouldn't be being without Dan Patrick. It would be being in HD. You know, I'd be, oh, I'd be no, terrified like that. about oh, that. Oh, and you know, we did a show in 3D at the Super Bowl. That was terrible. I do not have a face for 3D. I have a face for radio at best. So, uh, yeah, uh, imagine that. HD, HD is terrifying. I hate that it shows. They, they won't let us wear makeup, and they go in HD, which is bad enough. Imagine in 3D, which DirecTV is like a pioneer in, so they're going to start doing more of that. It's terrible. So your role on the show officially, when I look at, at it, is blogger. What is it exactly yeah. that you uh, kind of try to accomplish? What's your goal? What's a great day for, for, for Andrew or for McLovin? Like, what happens and you say, man, I really killed it today? You know, i got to be totally honest. Like, blogger is a – we all got titles originally. Mine was blogger. I actually consider myself more of a producer of the show um, because I also contribute to the radio show with ideas guest ideas, um, you know, any sort of bit idea, any sort of skit. Uh, I try and write a lot of that stuff. So basically, per Dan's direction, I've expanded my role. I do uh, a lot of the blog entries I will write, um, and I do a lot of the Internet stuff. 
but I also have a, a role producing not just that too, but also Dan has a magazine column on right. Sports Illustrated, and that's also my one of my primary jobs is liaison between Dan and the magazine. So I, I get the copy from Dan, uh, clean it up, and give it to SI. I, you know, so that's a big part of my role too. So basically, I, I think producer is the best title, but Dan doesn't really want to change the titles because it's he. Uh, basically doesn't think we're worth going through all that trouble to change the business card. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So your role has kind of expanded, and you mentioned booking guests. And, you know, on this podcast, I book all the guests. And, you know, my attitude is, you know, I, I'll never I, – I ask everyone. You know, the worst anyone can say is no, and that's not going to hurt my feelings. It's just not for them. Now, I'd imagine you have some advantages over me, but – I could still imagine that you've run into some difficulties trying to book guests. Has there ever been someone that you really wanted to get on the air that you just couldn't couldn't land? Um, yeah, every every week that happens. Uh, you know, because we go for like Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods and guys like that, and LeBron, for example. And they have not that they won't go on the show, but they only want to go on certain times. Like you know, LeBron will come on twice a year. Or, um, you know, Kobe will come on about five times a year. They want to, they want to sort of spread it out, and they don't want to do too much of one show. And a lot of shows, like there are a few guys that will only do our show, but they're very minimal about it. So, you know, and then there are some guys who won't do our show. To be honest, Tiger doesn't come on much anymore. He's well, he he comes on about once a year. But uh, you know, those are the kind of names that we have trouble with. Pretty much every other name we can get, uh, we could probably get pretty much anybody. But the uh, like the top 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 tier names sort of minimize how often they come on. Uh, anybody else? Unless there are a few guys who Dan has asked hard questions to in the past who don't want to come on anymore. Uh, I don't really want to say who that is, but there are a few big time athletes who Dan does not you know mince words with questions. He he always asks a hard question, and there are about three or four guys who won't come back on to that. One of the really cool things about the show, not to offend Dan Patrick by any means, is some of the great guest hosts that you have that occur regularly. Um, the Rich Eisen comes to mind as someone who is regularly a guest on the show and then also regularly a host on the show. Uh, is there any of the guest hosts that you really enjoy working for over some of the others? Like, is Rich Eisen one of the guys that you really enjoy having in, or is maybe there another name that you prefer? Oh, no, Rich was great. Uh, you know, I love NFL, so Rich was awesome. Rich is almost part of the show. He comes on every Friday. Uh, it almost felt when he was guest hosting, it's an extension of what he does on Fridays. And I think, uh, you know, Rich has that podcast now to turn into a show on the NFL Network. He was doing a lot of that stuff with us. You know, he's doing a lot of personality stuff on our show, and I think uh, it's a perfect trip for him. He was great. Kevin Frazier, who is on... Uh, uh, I believe Access Hollywood. It used to be an ESPN anchor. He's come on several times. He's fantastic. Really fun guy. Actually knows a ton of sports and is stuck doing an entertainment show. But uh, no, he's not stuck to the entertainment show. He's great at doing that too. But he was a blast. He really had Dan's voice down. As did Rich. The best guest hosts, I think, get the show. I think that's the most important thing. And really, uh, sort of, they get the vibe of the show. Dan and Dan had and they're fans of the show, and I think that's really what makes a great guest host. Because you're, listening, you're used to listening to certain things, so if you're bringing a guest host that's a totally different act that doesn't work as well, guys like Rich and Kevin come in, and they know Dan well, and I think you can hear that in the audience, and they've been the best. One of my favorite moments in the history of 
my experience listening to the show is when you had James Andrew Miller on. For one reason, it was because he had just been on my show, and it was kind of cool to share a guest with you guys. But you know, having James Andrew Miller on the Dan Patrick show just after those guys have all the fun, that must have been a really unique and interesting moment. And any, James Andrew Miller was everywhere. I, I mean, I'm not patting my back for having him on my show. He must have been on 300. But the more I, I read about his book tour, the more people seem to have responded to his time on the Dan Patrick show. What is it do you think about Dan's skills or maybe the show's atmosphere in general that can bring a guy who's been everywhere, probably over 100 spots, and have the spot on that show kind of shine through it all? You know, and I'm not just saying that as myself. It's something that I've read numerous times. You know, wow, you've you, you got to listen to James Andrew Miller on the Dan Patrick show. It's just something that rang out. Yeah, no, you hit it on the head. Dan gets more, I guess, can be on 300 stations. Dan will get something completely different. Uh, he's unbelievable at that. James Andrew Miller, that, I agree. That was one of my favorite interviews. I'm sure he's great with you, too. But it, it's almost surreal because Dan is the focal point of that book. I think. The key to that book is uh, the years where Keith and Dan became big stars in class with management. I think that there was more, maybe more of a focus on Keith because he was a little bit more outrageous. But, you know, they're making it into a movie. And yeah. I think that, I, 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 I don't know if it's a fact, but I think that's one of the big plot lines they're going to focus on because it was so fascinating. And to watch Dan and the author were sitting there, and I'm like, they probably know, both of them knew things that aren't in the book. <laughs> and we all always had like these sly smiles on the side. And it was, there was something really surreal and really cool about that. That was one of my favorite shows because, you know, Dan, I think Dan came off really well in the book. And Dan sort of sat him down and he goes, all right, come on, tell me, is there anything in there that would make me look bad that you left out of the book that we're going to hear about later? He's, and and Jay, uh, he was uh, very coy about it. He's like, well, I don't know. We'll see. And Dan was like, oh, boy. And then, uh, then it got into stuff. But, you know, there's... Uh, Dan kept saying that it's only the tip of the iceberg what's in the book. There a lot more happened in Bristol over the years. That was, uh, again, one of the best ones. But Dan is just, uh, he's just really gutsy as an interviewer. He really asks an uncomfortable question, uh, and that's why he gets more out of everyone. He's also unexpected. He, he's really like, you know, you think of Dan Patrick, the sports center guy, you know, funny, witty. I think he's a little more, his humor is even, goes even a little farther on the current iteration of the show, and that comes through a lot with these guests. One more question about the show, and then I do want to talk a little bit of football with you before you go. It's the Sportscasters here with Andrew Perloff from the Dan Patrick Show, and also you can find his work on sportsillustrated.com where he provides some columns, and you can follow him on Twitter. He is at Andrew Perloff. Uh, my last question about the show, somewhat of another surreal and interesting moment, is that Charlie Sheen was on the show just kind of before he became this cartoon of himself where he was winning and all of that. What was it like to have Charlie on the show and then to kind of watch his career unravel just like days later? Oh, you know, I told you, right. Charlie Sheen was on the show. I forgot about it. I'm just kidding. That was the interview <laughs> that rocked the Dan Patrick show. What happened was Charlie was on a year ago talking about baseball memorabilia and he was great. And then uh, Dan came across a story about USC baseball had Charlie out uh, to give a pep speech, and, and Charlie basically said uh, his pep talk was like, uh, you know, have a great year and don't do crack. And we were all <laughs> laughing at it. And Dan said, well, why'd you call him up? He was great last year. You know, and he hadn't done a major interview yet. And then Charlie came on, 
And he's, he told us, he's like, ask me about what's going on with Two and a Half Men. We're like, sure. And he ripped the creator of Two and a Half Men. And that started a process where Charlie, within a month, was, you know, a household name and everywhere. And you know what happened after that. But it just started because Dan and him had had a great baseball conversation the year before. Uh, we had his contact. And, you know, not only do we think that we, we were the only ones who thought to call him, but also he's really comfortable with Dan and really respects Dan. And then it really all started there. And uh, we never expected to be like that. And I have to tell you, there are, Charlie's called into the show times we haven't put him on. And they're not, like, they're not outrageous either. He'll call at like 7 in the morning with an opinion about a free agent or something. It's totally bizarre. <laughs> but, uh, you know, with Charlie, you don't know. You really don't know what was going on. I think there's more to the story than he's crazy. I think it was, uh, he's crazy, he's brilliant, he's stupid all at the same time. And we take some of the credit for that. So then M. Patrick Show airs daily from 9 to 12 Eastern Time on DirecTV, Channel 101. It's also syndicated all over the nation. You can listen to podcasts on iTunes. And um, I want to talk to you a little bit, not just about your role on the Dan Patrick Show, but some of the great work that you provide for SportsIllustrated.com and some of the writing that you do. And I read your most recent column about Kevin Cobb. And you're a big fan of, of Philadelphia sports. I don't think you hide that. I think that's something you're very proud of to be an Eagles fan. First of all, the well, Eagles. Well, uh, actually, you know what? What? I I, I am. This is going to come off the roof. I am a big Philly fan, so my Eagles fanness is way down. Yeah. It, I grew up a Philly an Eagles fan. I grew up season tickets. I mean, I don't hide that. But we just got this last week. Like, first of all, professionally, I feel a need to distance myself, but also too, I like. I never go into an Eagles game rooting for the Eagles. I'm always rooting for either the best story or the storyline that fits the last thing I wrote. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, like I I've understand. Had, I, I've had to divorce myself from my Eagles fans. And I've actually, Scooby, I've gotten to know a few of the players. I've done, um, for the Sports, Sports Illustrated NFL preview, I did the Eagles uh, team capsule three years in a row. Spent a lot of time in camp. Spent a lot of time around Cobb. I've been down there a lot, and it's a great organization. But once you get to know, uh, I think as a journalist, once you get to know some of the players and some of the teams, you find yourself rooting in a different way. I'm not like a blind Eagles fan anymore. You know, if I write a column saying I think the Eagles made a bad move, I think they're going to lose to the Giants this week. I'm not. Of course, I'm not going to the game saying, "Oh, I hope the Eagles crush them." You know, like I would when I was 15. So. I've kind of, uh, I, I don't really consider myself an Eagles fan. I have a lot, I've gotten to know some people on the Cowboys. I am a big fan of their organization, too. You know, and as an Eagles fan, if I say that in Philly, <laughs> you know, I, you know, and, and, and I, would, I would hope that it wouldn't come through. Sometimes it does on the Dan Patrick Show, because Dan wants us to be real people, not just journalists. So, you know, I do root, but I, I hope I don't come off as rooting too much for the Eagles. I really am not as interested in the result in a pro-Philly way as I should be. Baseball, I don't cover it all, so I can be pro-Philly. Uh, but I think it's important to keep that distance. And I know, you know, this Cobb article, for example, that came off, I was a little worried that came off as too pro-Cobb. Uh, a little bit. But there was just so much bashing. Yeah, it did. Yeah, a little <laughs> there bit. There was just so much bashing of Cobb. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm like, well, why did it take Balance. $20 million if he's such a scrub, the way everyone's talking about it? And I'll tell you what people have told me about him, and that's what I was trying to say is like, you know, the, the, both sides of the story weren't, be told, weren't being told about Cobb. There's a lot of positive about Kevin Cobb. And all you're hearing is the best thing people were saying was, well, you just don't know yet. 
No, Kevin Cobb is better than just you just don't know yet. He's a, he's a good quarterback. I, I saw people getting away from that message. I watched Kevin Cobb play a whole NFL game. It, w- it was two seasons ago, uh, and it was week two against the Saints. I don't know yeah, if you remember the game. game. You're yeah. at the game. Okay. So Kevin Cobb played a pretty pretty outstanding game. I think he had a pretty long touchdown pass to Deshaun Jackson, and he also had a pick six to Darren Sharper, I believe, that went really far. It was a key play in the game. Um, do you think that since that point, Kevin Cobb has matured past the point of making the big mistake? And do you think that he is going to really turn? I mean, obviously, I guess you do. Anyone who's read the column, but not everyone who has. Why don't you kind of lay out uh, what it is about Kevin Cobb that you think will make him a success in Arizona? Well, you know what? You bring up a great question. That it wasn't just that pick. That pick six, the game was sort of decided. He threw a pick. Remember the pick to the old, to the linebacker. He was out, and he didn't see the linebacker. He killed an Eagles drive and went to a Saints field goal with no time left in the half and changed the game. And I actually yep. asked him about that. I'm like, what, you know, he, I think he regretted that pick more than any pass he threw that year. And I asked him what happened. He's like, I just didn't see that linebacker. And then I asked him, what lesson did you learn from that game when you threw three interceptions? I think it was three against the Saints. And last one, or he threw four. And the last one was a Hail Mary with no time left. And he goes, be careful when you're throwing Hail Marys because uh, that'll be an interception and everybody will talk about how you threw an extra interception. And I was like, you know, so he's very defiant about people ripping him for interceptions. He's a total gunslinger. He's much closer to Brett Favre than Donovan McNabb. McNabb was obsessed with not throwing picks. You know, he never threw picks. He'd rather throw it into the ground than throw a pick. Cobb does not mind throwing a pick, and you're going to see that in Arizona. He'll force some situations. He's definitely got the gunslinger mentality. It's probably his biggest fault is that he, he's going to throw interceptions. So, and that ain't going to change uh, because he is not going to change. He's, a, he's a, a definitely a West Coast quarterback, but he's not a conservative one. So I think you bring up a great point. You're concerned about interceptions, which you haven't heard a lot. I think he's going to throw for a lot of yards and a lot and maybe a few picks in Arizona. The linebacker that made that interception, by the way, was Scott Shanley. Uh, yeah, I knew yeah. it was Shanley. Yeah. Shanley I'm just yeah. not used to Shanley having interceptions. So I was like, Wait, am I, should I say it was Shanley? Because I could be wrong. I can't ever get picks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, uh, it was Shanley, and yeah. he did through, throw three picks that, that day. One to Porter, which was the Hail Mary yeah. one, and then the Sharper one that went 97 yards for the touchdown. Uh, but so you're, you're, what else have you seen over the, uh, uh, this last couple of weeks here that maybe will inspire a future column or what storylines are you really excited to see play out as the NFL season gets going and we finally get some preseason games here in the next week or so? Well, obviously Nandi to the Eagles was, I got a call from my editor SI, it was Friday night at like 10 o'clock. He was saying, listen, what, what do you got on, uh, on Nandi? He's like, what's your angle on Nandi? And I said, I think this is a little bit too much hype for a guy who's never been on a winning team. And they, for me, the Eagles defense, the issue is not the players, but they lost the longtime coordinator, Jim Johnson, and did not recover. Uh, he was a real genius who I think has been uh, doing a lot behind the scenes to keep that team in the playoffs. Probably never got credit for it. And uh, I think that's their biggest problem in systematic. I don't think it's getting better players, but... It is pretty exciting. So I think they're the team that's got the most attention. Uh, and then after that, you know, I live in New York now, so maybe I'm biased again. But the Jets, I mean, all eyes are on the Jets. Talking about a team that is Super Bowl or bust. I think uh, the Jets are the one team that you really have to look at as having the most dynamic offseason, including 
the Eagles, just because there's so much noise around the Jets. It's like everything they do, they be, they make a splash out of. And I, I honestly, I think they're going to be my Super Bowl pick. I haven't, Dan said you have two weeks to make your Super Bowl pick, so I haven't decided for sure. But I'm leaning heavily towards New York right now. New York versus? Well, I mean, you got to look at the Packers again. you got to look at the Steelers again. Uh, I got burned last year. I had the Saints and the Chargers. I, I am a huge fan of the Saints organization. I think they're really good. I think they're going to be really good this year. So, basically, I'm looking at those teams. I mean, nothing nothing radical. And, of course, New England. Uh, New England is another team. That's an organization I'm a big fan of. And I really like the people there. But, I, you know, I'm not just trying to prove I'm not an Eagles fan. My thing is like, <laughs> <laughs> So, I, I haven't decided. I have two weeks. Have you made your pick yet, by any chance? Or? Uh, I had, I, we did make a super early pick last last week, and I picked the Patriots versus the Saints. Oh, okay. So, so you're a Saints backer, too. Yes, I yeah. am a big... Oh, I'm... I've been for full disclosure. I've been a Saints fan since I was seven years old. So that, you know, oh. that's something that I don't hide on the show. I'm a huge Saints fan. You know, I go to a game every year. I've seen every game they've played since I was 16 years old, and had the capacity to move myself to somewhere where the game was playing. Uh, but it, so wait, well, why did you tell me last year that they weren't going to be good? I I was sure they were going to repeat. They were because good. I thought they were better last year than they were the year before on paper. Here was the problem with the season last year. They never had an offseason because they spent the whole offseason celebrating. It was probably the longest Super Bowl celebration in the history of yeah. celebrations. So that was one thing. I know you're absolutely right. It took them a long time to get back to business. Another thing is they just could not stay healthy at running back. And this offense is great, but when Drew Brees is sh- throwing 50 passes a game, it just doesn't work as much as you would think. Because he, the, the offense is better when there's balance. When he almost set Dan Marino's mark, I think he came 15 yards short. That was an 8-8 eight eight team. The team wasn't any good because there was no balance. But when they have Pierre Thomas going between the tackles and we're using Reggie Bush on the outsides as more of a, a slash kind of a back, that's when the team was best. And I think they can return to that this year with Thomas being healthy. Then you have a little bit of insurance with Mark Ingram. I think the Sproles signing was great. I think he's less risk than Bush was. Bush was a lot of risk-reward. I think there'll be more reward and less risk with Sproles. And I think protects the ball a little bit better. And I think they're going to have a really, really outstanding bounce-back year. And you know what? It was my first chance to ever watch one of my teams play a season as a champion. And I, I believe that there's something to the every team gets pumped up to play the champions. I've never seen Alex <clears throat> Smith. I've never seen Alex Smith play the way Alex Smith played on Monday Night Football against the Saints. And, hey, maybe it's just a coincidence, <laughs> you know, but he hasn't played a game that good since, and he hasn't played a good game that after. So I don't know what was in the water that night. But if it seems like stuff like that just kept happening to the team. I mean, look at Matt Hasselbeck in the playoffs. I mean, the guy didn't – I don't think he threw an incompletion. And then, you know, Marshall Lynch, Marshall Lynch stepped on every all 11 players' well, heads on the that. way to the end zone. Don't tell yeah. me about don't tell me about speed on the outside. This is a team that refused to tackle a guy. To me, that is a signature play of the season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, admit, that was the most heartless play you've ever seen by a defense in your life. Oh, it was disgusting. And, you know, I was on yeah. this five-year grace period thing that everyone told me I had to do. I think it immediately ended on that play. Like, I was legitimately disgusted, and I wanted to puke. I was, I was relatively calm during the season. Some of the bad losses, like to Cleveland, we lost to Cleveland at home, and I kind of took that, didn't worry about it, you know, threw in the, or read the commemorative Sports Illustrated edition that I have on my coffee table. You know, just kind of let it, let it go off. But uh, when Marshawn Lynch 
and Marsh, I'm from Buffalo, and I know what a dud Marshawn Lynch is. And to see that happen, it just it ripped my heart out. But I'm ready for the season. I think the team's going to be great. I think Mickey Loomis has done a great job. But you're the guest. I'm supposed to be answering you the questions. I only have a couple more minutes left with you. Andrew Perloff from the Dan Patrick Show, also from SportsIllustrated.com. You can find him on Twitter. He's at Andrew Perloff, P-E-R-L-O-F-F. You, another guy you're high on, maybe more than some others, is Terrell Pryor. And you wrote a piece about him on SI.com. Seems like he's they're not gonna let him be eligible for the supplemental draft, but I'm sure he'll find his way into the league at some point. Do you think that he'll be successful in the league or do you think that he'll struggle to find success? Um you know, I my last column of flyer was actually negative. Yeah, I think he'll be successful at tight end slash wide receiver. I don't know how he's gonna be successful at quarterback. I I actually been a prior at quarterback basher. Just because you know what? Full disclosure, I am against every scrambling quarterback. I always, I, I never, I don't see, I don't see Cam Newton being number one overall value. I don't see Jake Locker being a number eight overall value. I think these guys are way overvalued because they would run in college. And prior is even worse thrower than those two guys. And honestly, I don't think those guys have typical NFL arms. I mean, actually, Cam Newton has arm strength. I just don't think he's a, an accurate NFL quarterback. And Locker, I had no idea what teams were seeing him in the top ten. So Pryor, uh, the way I look at it, Pryor is not built for NFL success. I just think when you look at the successful quarterbacks, you know, there are certain things that they do that I've never seen in Terrell Pryor. I've never seen him sort of stand there when pressure's coming and make the right call for the throw to. He hasn't, he hasn't had pro-type plays. So I re- I, not only do I not see, uh, I don't actually when Pryor's going to be a good quarterback, because I don't think he'll ever be a good quarterback. I mean, I've been wrong before on this, but I just don't quite see it in the NFL. Yeah, I, I, I'm on board with you there. You mentioned that the Rams or the Bears would be a good fit for Plaxico, and he ended up in an organization that you mentioned a few few minutes ago, the Jets. You think that's a good fit? Yeah, I mean, the Jets the Jets are like this all-in mentality. You know, they, I thought they were going to get Moss because they don't really care about character or anything like that, obviously. Plax is another guy who falls into that category. I thought, I actually wrote that the Eagles were going to get Plaxico. I thought he was perfect for them. Because they'd seen him torch them for years. I think they must have had 50 uh, defensive holding penalties on him over the years because they couldn't stop him. Uh, Jets and Eagles, same situation, sort of think they're one wide receiver away from the Super Bowl. And if you think that, then he's a perfectly fine risk for one year because what's the downside? If he doesn't work out, he doesn't work out. And he, obviously he's going to be motivated. I just say, I, I, I think the consensus now is that he's going to be better having come out of prison. Everyone's going to think he's going to pull Michael Vick. I haven't really heard anyone who said the Jets are foolish because this guy was in prison. I don't know if you've seen that angle at all, but I, no. I, I think it's almost a no-brainer. Everyone thinks Plaxico is going to perform, and he is a talent. Even at 34, he is a really good receiver when he's focused. So I, I think he's going to be a good, good fit in there in New York, and I think the Jets did really well getting rid of Braylon until they get rid of him. I, I did not think he was a great fit for that team. He, he didn't have as many drops last year, but I heard he wasn't a great locker room guy, and uh, he just didn't seem to fit in with that crew. I wasn't sure he was the guy sticking around the top. I think they're better off with Plax than they are with Braylon. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. One thing that surprised me is him staying in New York. I mean, the, the mayor kind of went after him and made an example of him, and I thought he might kind of run away as far as he could from New York and 
when you know St. Louis, I think was a spot where I thought might make sense because obviously Sam Bradford needs weapons, and I thought maybe he could hide out there. But maybe just the lure of playing for Rex Ryan and on a Super Bowl contender was probably just too much for him to uh, to walk away from. So last thing, sixty nine and thirty nine, your Phillies cruising. Yeah, you confident? Is this the team going to be a World Series team? What team in the NL scares you the most? Is it the Giants with uh, adding Beltron, or do you are you afraid of the Braves a little bit with their starting pitching? Maybe the closest to be able to go toe to toe with the Phillies starters, or is it the Giants still that you fear? It's so funny. About a week ago, I made a desperate call to a friend. Uh, the Phillies were losing to the Giants, and I said, "We can't beat this team. We just can't do it." What, uh, have you ever seen The Hustler with Paul Newman when uh, yep. Jackie Gleason's like, I just can't beat him? Uh, basically, the Giants' bullpen is like kryptonite for, for the Phillies. Maybe with the right-hand bat of Pence, we could figure it out. I, just, I think we could play the Giants in 10 series and lose all 10. Because, you know, both teams have great starting pitching. That knocks itself out. Neither team is a great hitting team right now. I think that the Giants' bullpen is just too tough. And they have those lefty relievers that kill Howard. You know, to me, the Phillies, you know, sort of hinge on Ryan Howard. If they can get him in a position where people are going to throw fastballs over the plate to him, he's great. There's no one on base, and the pitchers can throw a bunch of breaking balls. He's going to strike out every single time. So, I honestly, I'm too worried about the lefties of the Giants. I think that's the big problem. The other thing about baseball is you can be you can win what 110 games in the regular season. You have no idea what's going to happen in the playoffs. So it's hard for me to talk trash as a Phillies fan because I've seen I've seen it happen too many times. Where uh, you know I'm in New York, I see Yankees fans talking trash. Then the playoffs start, and you just never know. So I definitely I definitely have some issues uh, rooting for my Phillies right now. Well, that 41 and 18 home record has to make you smile a little bit, knowing that the National League has a home field advantage. Through the uh, through the playoffs because the Phillies have been practically unbeatable at home, and I was actually in Philadelphia for the Pearl, a Pearl Jam concert as they played four shows to close the Spectrum. The last time the Phillies were in the World Series, playing the Yankees right across the street, it was kind of a cool experience. Uh, you that, know, I was there a football okay. There was a football game the same day as the World Series game too that I was at. Was that a, that was a different? Was that the same series? It might have been a playoff game. Because I remember there was one, and it was just like the ultimate Philadelphia day. But everything's going on down there, and the Phillies are in the World Series. Isn't that the greatest atmosphere? Yeah, it's unbelievable. I've always loved the idea of putting all the arenas kind of, you can see them like right to the right when you're going down the highway. and It's called like Sportsplex, or I'm not sure exactly what it's called, but you get off there. I've always loved that, the way they've developed that. It's such a cool area, such a great atmosphere, a really fun place to be, so... You're lucky to be lucky to be a Phillies fan. We don't we don't have a baseball team in Buffalo here, but um, guys, <laughs> yeah, thank no, you for being on the show. Me, oh, trust me, I I suffer for years, so I pay True. my dues. Absolutely, um, gotta thank you for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Anything else you want to plug? What's going to be going on in the Dan Patrick Show in the next week or so? Anything you're going to have on SportsIllustrated.com? Uh, well, the DP Show, we have a lot of great guests as always. But as a personal plug, follow me at Andrew Perloff on Twitter. Because we're having a silent competition between the Dan, that's all Dan's uh, co-workers to see who can get more Twitter followers. We're really kind of pathetic, but we all sort of, can, we all want to be first place in Dan's mind. So that would really help. And that's uh, it's an important thing for me right now. Well, I got an idea that will give you an edge in the contest. Okay. You, should, you can tweet that you are on at Sportscasters today. 
and you had a yep. great time, and then all of the sportscasters fans will follow you. I'll make sure of it. Are you kidding me? That's easy. Yeah, no, I, uh, you see, I'm kind of new to Twitter, so some of this stuff, I, I don't understand these strategies, but I, I will, I, you know what, here's the thing, I'm not just going to do it once. I'm going to Twitter stalk you, and I'm going to just send <laughs> it out about 15 times over the course of the next three days. That sounds, that, okay? that sounds awesome. I can't wait to have a Twitter stock fight with you. <laughs> cool. All right. Thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Talk to you soon. All right, I want to thank Andrew Perloff. That was awesome, Don. I'm pumped about that. Got to thank him for coming on. Look forward to having more of the Dan Atz on in the future, and hopefully someday we can land the big dog and have Dan Patrick on the Sportscasters. That would be incredible. Quick book club update. We talked about last week how for the book club this month in August, we would kind of spend some time just kind of reading some articles about football, kind of more longer feature types, but not books, short stories that are written about football, uh, more of the nonfiction variety. And the first story that I read this week is something that was really interesting to me. And it was written, it was part of the July 12, 2004 Sports Illustrated. And it actually is a piece that they picked for their 50 years of good sports writing. And it's called A Life After Wide Right. And of course, it's about Scott Norwood and his life after missing that devastating field goal in Super Bowl 25, And it was written by Carl Taro Greenfield. And I read it over, over the course of the week and really enjoyed the article. And I touched base with Carl. And Carl is actually going to be on the show in the next couple of weeks to talk about the article and talk a little bit about his career in writing. He's also been published twice in the Best American Sports Writing Series. And he's written books and some other stuff. So an interesting article, Carl Taro Greenfield. And his article is A Life After Wide Right. And instead of going into a lot of details today about it, I think I'll leave it for you to read. Uh, you can find it in sportsillustrated.com's vault. If you search A Life After Wide Right, it will come right up in Google. And uh, shoot me an email. Let me know what you think about it, the sportscasters at gmail.com. And we're going to have Carl on uh, to talk about the article and some other things that he's done in his career. So that's something to look forward to in terms of the book club. And we kind of figured that doing this, we would be able to find at least an author or two that would want to come on and talk about it. And I think maybe towards the end of the month, right when we're getting really ready for football, maybe we'll do just like a bonus show where we have a bunch of these authors that we have read over the course of the month talking about their work. So we can look forward to that as the month goes on. But it's a life after wide right from July 12, 2004, the first article I challenge you to read, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of it. And we're going to have Carl Taro Greenfield on to talk about it in the future. So we're going to take another quick break, and we are going to be right back with Katie Baker from Grantland.com. <laughs> Our next guest is from Pennington, New Jersey, and is a graduate of Yale University. After college, she spent six years working for Goldman Sachs, where she was a member of the Asset Management Division. She has contributed to Deadspit.com and has provided columns for New York Times Magazine, Gawker, and other publications. Last month, she left New York City 
and moved to San Francisco where she is a full-time sports writer for Grantland.com. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the talented and accomplished Katie Baker. How are you doing today, Katie? Hi, fine, thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> we're, very glad, we're very glad to have you. It's Katie's first podcast. So thanks for, thanks for um, taking, uh, taking the try with us here. Um, I just kind of was just discovered your work a few weeks ago. Uh, like many people, I've been interested to see what Grantland is all about. I've been a fan of Simmons for a long time. And when the site launched, I was interested to see what was going on. And uh, the first, one of the first columns I noticed was something about weddings. I started to read it and I, I was like, I don't know what Simmons is doing here. He's, he's got some girl writing and she's talking about weddings. I said, this is, this is, it sounds like uh, I've been dating the same girl for 11 years. She's always trying to talk to me about weddings. I, I just got a little sweaty when I was reading your first column. But then like last week, you wrote a little bit about uh, this New York Islanders arena thing. And we're big hockey people here. And the more I researched you, I found out you're big hockey people, too. And uh, you've been a hockey fan for a long time. So why don't we start with saying, well, we now know that the Islanders' vote failed yesterday. So the community in Nassau County will not be providing Mr. Wang with any money or anything like that. So you have been, you've been writing all day and working on this story. So where are we at? Where do we go from here? Um, well... Um, I think it's hard to know exactly what's going to happen. You know, um, the, the, mo the most immediate thing is that it doesn't mean that the team, you know, moves out tomorrow. Their lease doesn't end until 2015, but, um, basically the point that, um, the Islanders ownership had been making is this is kind of the last, you know, the last, you know, time that we have to start something new so that something is completed by then. So, you know, whether they're bluffing and, and they think they can, you know, pull something together faster, um, you know, remains to be seen, or whether they're going to sell the team or, you know, try to look for something else, you know, in Suffolk County or in, you know, in Brooklyn. So basically what, you know, what the no vote did was just, um, you know, I guess kind of like Groundhog Day, it just is going to prolong <laughs> the kind of circus atmosphere that's now totally surrounding this franchise. Yeah, it seems like no matter what plan Mr. Wang puts forth, it just doesn't seem to get any support. They had the Lighthouse Project, and that failed due to some zoning issues. And uh, now this was sort of a last grasp, and it doesn't, didn't work out. And it seems like all signs are kind of pointing towards the Islanders leaving Long Island because they've said time and time again that they're not going to lose money the way they have, and they're not going to stay in that building one year longer than they have to. And I'm sure you've been in... How many NHL arenas have you been in in your life? I mean, probably like, I don't know, maybe 10 or so. And there's nothing um, worse than that one, right? I mean, other than the Igloo, yeah, which no, is I now mean, closed. It's, just, it's, you know, it's, it's, the oldest, um, it's the oldest arena in the NHL other than Madison Square Garden, which, um, you know, as Rangers fans and Knicks fans know, is undergoing the first of many huge renovations starting this summer. So, you know, basically completely upgrading the arena. Um, so the Coliseum is like a relic of a past era, um, and it's kind of fitting because Long Island itself, um, you know, po politically and um, socially is beginning to become a relic of its own past era, um, which is something that I found out when I was, you know, doing more research about this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not usually someone who would be really gung-ho about, you know, the government financing arenas, but in this case it just seems like, 
um, you know, they got they they own the land now, they own the current arena, um, and yet they they've kind of shut down all these, you know, plans to either better it or to rebuild it. And so it's kind of like, <laughs> okay, well, what 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 will you do? Um, so you know, I, I just I just think that the Islanders ownership and Charles Walking and um, you know the rest of you know Garcia and they just kind of find themselves in this in this situation where you know um, they just keep getting told no, and it's it's unclear what is going to you know get the answer yes. And it seems like you know I I feel, I feel bad for Islanders fans uh, because they have good ownership. The guy has taken the hits the last few years as best as he could, and it just seems like, like you said, no matter what he does, he can't get any support in the community. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, it's not that it's not that he's been, you know, some, you know, he's not a martyr. He's he's a developer. He, he bought the team, um, you know, with with his eye on developing and on making money. Um, but that being said, he bought the team, and there weren't there really wasn't anyone else that you know, was lined up to buy it, and in, in the decade before he bought it, um, literally um, several of the owners were or have since proven to have, you know, become felons, um, including one guy who was an outright con man who owned the team for 40 days um, in, like, 1996. So, you know, it's just, you know, they should be happy to have a developer, you know, who who wants to, you know, own the team and, and to better the, the area around it. Um, and they tried to do it privately, and, you know, granted, the, the original plan, which is called the Lighthouse Plan, was, you know, kind of a, a comically, absurdly large um, endeavor as it was originally presented, but that's the nature of these things, and then, you know, you kind of cut a little off the top and off the acreage, which is what they did, and it just got stonewalled for so long in a very unproductive way, you know, in a very, like, silent um you know, not working toward a solution kind of way. So, um, you know, and here they are, and, and he's, you know, he's put about $20 million of his own money a year into the franchise, and, um, you know, he's not, he's, he's not some, you know, he didn't come in here last year and now is trying to, you know, make millions. You know, he's, he's a Long Islander. Um, there's a lot of things he's done that, that fans and, and that I you know, don't agree with, and, you know, when he bought the team, he joked he had to, had to read hockey for dummies. But, you know, but on the other hand, like, who else? <laughs> I don't know who else would want the team at this point. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's been some other successes in the league in terms of developing new arenas in less desirable areas. For example, the Washington Capitals built their arena right in the middle of Chinatown in Washington. And I think that was an area that people laughed that Ted Leonsis was going to invest in. And now it's a great area to go see the game. And it's unfortunate that it seems like Long Island isn't going to be a spot for a team called the Islanders much longer. Um, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about some other things as well. I was reading a little bit for this interview about some of the stuff you've done. And you've been writing on the Internet for about hockey um, for a long time, it seems like. And I read one of your columns on Deadspin last night, and we joked about it on email, uh, about how you were uh, this person who had a, a crush on the Internet, and you said you were older, and you went on a date, and all this stuff. Why don't you tell us a little <laughs> bit about your background on the Internet and uh, how you became uh, an Internet writer. You actually had stock in a company that ended up failing. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this fascinating story of your kind of childhood and maybe the time between 
that you got your first computer and maybe to the point of getting at Yale? <laughs> well, um, a crush on the internet is probably the most succinct way of, of explaining it. Um, but um, to make a long story short, um, and, and what you referred to is um, something I wrote for Deadspin last year about my 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 childhood and teenage years. Um, but when I was younger, you know, I got I wanted a computer. My friends were starting to get computers, and I got one. And um, you know, I was I instantly loved it and signed up for a program called eWorld, and you know, chatted and all the sports chat rooms because I was a little, you know, sports fan um, <laughs> and didn't have too many people to talk about sports with other than, you know, the boys in my class and my dad. Um, so, you know, and that led to um, during the, the dot-com boom, you know, in the in kind of late, in the late 90s, um, I, you know, I worked for a company that had spun out of an Apple company that was like, for ch- had chat rooms and I, I worked for them and I, you know, I'm, I was I was the person that would tell you to stop swearing and kick you out of the room, but I was also leading discussions um, about issues about you know for teams. Cause I was a team myself, um, and also about sports. And then, um, you know, that all kind of it, the stock that you referred to owning was this company, you know, which went public as as many companies did in those days, and just as many companies did, the you know the stock soon became worthless. Um, so my you know, my my big bucks on paper that my dad said was going to put me through college ended up, you know, being being worthless by the time they were even able to be sold. But anyway, that all led to um, me getting older and, um, you know, love it, just kind of always having been online, continuing to be online. On You know, at that point, message boards were kind of the new thing. Um, or not the new thing, but I got into message boards and, um, for whatever reason, I think I was just a bored, you know, 15, 16-year-old. I said that I was an 18-year-old um, <laughs> and, you know, was friends with all these people in, in these hockey message boards, talking about hockey, you know, saying I was older than I was and ended up meeting a couple of them. Um, and, you know, it's just sort of the, the kind of story that um, once I wrote it, people were, you know, said to me, I'm glad this was with my daughter, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, but at the time, it was at, at the same time. I think it was the kind of thing that a lot of people that um, you know came of age on the internet can kind of relate to, you know, regardless of whether they, you know, took it as far as I did. So. Yeah, I think we've all said a fib or two in a chat room. Uh, anyone who grew up <laughs> in, the, in the era that we did. So you have your own column. Well, you, you've written some columns on Deadspin. You were kind of a part-time sports writer. You were also working at Goldman Sachs. When did you make the decision that you were going to leave the corporate world and become a full-time sports writer? Was the was the allure of writing about sports just too much to keep you in the corporate <laughs> world, or you know what went into your decision? Um, yeah, I mean, I had always, um, you know, through, throughout college and even in high school, um, I had you know written about sports for the paper and. Um, before I went to Goldman, I also, you know, applied for, you know, a summer internship at, like, Time, Time Inc. and Sports Illustrated, and um, so it's always in the back of my mind. Um, and then I think just a big part of it was, you know, working there when the recession and the, and all those, you know, companies started going out of business and the market was crashing, and 
it was just a huge wake up call to me, you know, seeing people kind of get laid off, um, you know, just like everyone else was in, in all industries, but, but, you know, seeing it up close, um, you know, just made me realize, you know, what am I doing? What do I want to be doing? Um, so that's kind of when I really started to think about actually leaving. Um, and then, you know, I, I kept working there for a while and was just trying to write, you know, early in the mornings and on the side um, in order to, you know, build up my, you know, my portfolio, I guess you would say. Because, you know, it's not like I had all this stuff that I had written that I could show people. So uh, I couldn't just, you know, leave. So I, I needed to see if I could if I could do that. So, um, so yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I really loved working at Goldman. And, you know, I'm so lucky to have been at, like, a, a great company and, um you know, it's nothing against them, but um, I was, you know, really happy to finally get to a place where I could, you know, try something new. We talked to AJ Delirio a few weeks ago, your old boss at Deadspin, <laughs> and uh, I read an article that he wrote after you had decided to sign with Grantland that kind of described him as very surprised that you weren't, you didn't decide to become a full-time writer at Deadspin. What was it about Grant? What was it about Grantland that drew you to that site as opposed to Deadspin or maybe something at Gawker or something else? Um, well, first of all, I love Deadspin, and um, you know, I, I, AJ is a great friend, and I basically owe him most of everything about um, you know where, what I've been able to do, and, and uh, he, you know, those guys are the best. Tommy Craig's is the best. I love that site. Um, I don't. I don't care, you know, I don't care who knows that, et cetera. But, um, you know, I, I think just at the time that, that I had talked to them, um, you know, the the Deadspin thing wasn't, you know, it was, I would have to be in New York, um, whereas I, I knew I wanted to be moving out to California. Um, and, you know, it just, the, the opportunity wasn't there in, like, exactly the same way that um, it was, um, you know, for for something like Grantland, which was starting up and had kind of more clearly defined, um, you know, opportunities available. But, I mean, I, I you know, loved Deadspin. Um, you know, for a while I thought I was going to quit my job to go work there, and, you know, I, I wanted to, and, the, you know, and, and it, there's no real reason that, that it didn't happen. Um, you know, but I still feel like they, they were so great to, to let me, um, you know, contribute to the sites in the way that I did while I was, you know, working elsewhere. So, I'm all. I, uh, it's a little bit of a little bit of personal hygiene. I, I do have deodorant on, so I probably won't sweat. So we can talk a little bit about weddings, even though the whole issue does uh, does make me sweat a little bit. But I'm all. Uh, old spice. I know. I was gonna say eleven years. Maybe you should be studying. <laughs> I'm all I'm all old spiced up here, so I can uh, I can handle it. So tell us a little <laughs> bit about matrimonial Moneyball, kind of an ingenious thing that you've created and has been was your kind of initial introduction to Deadspin. Tell us a little or to Grantland. Tell us a little bit about matrimonial Moneyball and about your newest wedding blitz column and some of the great weddings that happened this July. Well, um, so um, credit where it's due, it originally began as a, a very short-lived feature on Gawker, um, and it was kind of, they did it, you know, for a couple of months, and then it kind of faded away, and I always loved the idea. Um, and so a couple of years later, um, you know, I resurrected it um, on, on Gawker and wrote it for a little while. 
And, I mean, the genesis of it is just, like, I don't know about you or, 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 your, or your girlfriend or whatever, but um, on Sundays, my friends and I very often, you know, get the New York Times and, like, turn to the wedding section, you know, sometimes because we knew people in there, whether we, you know, frenemies or, or actual friends or whatever. Um, and just looking at the couples, it's, just, it's such a, in New York Times especially, it's such a, you know, ridiculous mix of people's accomplishments and, you know, social status. Um, so it was always a talking point. So the thing that was, was so great about, um, you know, or now you know, matrimonial money ball is that you, you start to see the same trends over and over, um, you know, whether it's, you know, I'd say like 50% of the, of the parents of the bride or groom, the mother is like a preschool teacher, you know, like it never fails. Or <laughs> like, you know, the dad is a, is a partner at a law firm. And, um, you know, so starting to, to look at it, you know, in a more quantitative way and, and to identify the patterns, um, and, you know, and one thing that um, that I've always felt about the feature is I'm not trying to be mean to people. I'm not I'm not trying to, like, you know, be a jerk to someone on their wedding day. It's just more of, like, celebrating, like, what the New York Times has considered to be the, you know, the weddings that are most worthy of, of their special brand of reporting. <laughs> um, so it's a fun piece, but, um, and, you know, it's, it's rooted in fact. <laughs> so... The cool thing I got to imagine about working in Grantland is you have this website that was basically basically a mix of sports and pop culture, and you have the freedom to write about things like weddings one day and then the next day write about the Islanders and their their fight for a new arena. I mean, is there another website that you could have written for that you can be as diverse as a writer, and is that maybe one of the things that drew you to Grantland? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's for sure something that, that was a huge draw and something that I think, um, is, um, what makes the site great and what makes it a great place to just kind of, you know, check in on through the day and, and, you know, it's, it's like a little place of the internet. Like, it's not all about sports, it's not all about culture, it's, um, it's kind of a mix of everything. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a great sense of freedom and I think it makes for some, you know, creative, ideas and um you know that it's been fun for me and and i'm always i'm always looking for more ideas um you know i, I love writing about you know random things that that ha- have been you know undercovered like like i thought the islanders um had been so you know anyone listening you're, <laughs> you're always free to suggest ideas to me and i will likely take you up on it <laughs> so so tell, explain to me how this works so does you look at your phone one day and you're like, oh, I don't know that number. And you pick it up and it's like Bill Simmons on the other line and he wants you to work for Grantland or kind of how did the process? Oh, I, you know, like I'm sure it was with, with many of the other writers. He had, um, he had seen some things that I'd written. Um, and um, it, uh, I, sadly, it wasn't a, <laughs> a, a rogue phone call like that, but rather, um, you know, via email and um, we got to talking and, it just kind of progressed from there, but um, but you know it was it was kind of a you know a while before the the whole concept of, of something you know really took shape, and um, so you know I was I was working away at Goldman and, and truly not knowing you know whether I'd I'd be there in a year or whether I wouldn't, and you know, hoping, cross my fingers, and 
Um, so I'm very happy and grateful that everything worked out. So one question that comes to mind is why San Francisco and not Los Angeles? I mean, I would imagine that the Grantland offices and things are in Los Angeles where Mr. Simmons lives, but you chose to move to San Francisco. What was behind that decision? Uh, well, I had um, several years ago, I'm a very um, outdoorsy person and a big skier, and um, several years ago when I was first thinking about living Goldman, um, I, we, my boyfriend and I were thinking of um, going to Boulder, Colorado or Denver, so we tried to make that work, and that didn't work, and then we were thinking of, you know, where else is kind of a similar lifestyle, a similar outdoorsy places, so that was the genesis behind San Fran, so, um, you know, I, I went down to L.A. Um, a couple of weeks ago, saw the Grantland offices, which was really fun. Um, got to see all the incredibly tireless editors who are slaving away many, many hours a day, especially having to wake up early, being on the West Coast, um, and who don't get nearly enough credit, and they should be given all the credit. Um, and I still don't quite understand L.A., so I'm going to have to go back and, um, you know, I basically saw, like, airport in the office. <laughs> so um, I wasn't exactly, like, you know, cruising I don't even know what, what the name of the strip is that you would cruise in LA. <laughs> it's not me. So being the queen of matrimonial uh, money ball, do you, when you get it, when you're in a relationship, like you said, you have a boyfriend, do you kind of like write out your, uh, what your column would look like in the New York times and figure <laughs> what, what out, what kind of score, you know, like do you, you only date people who would be a 30 or above, you know, like, <laughs> well, uh, I can't decide if, uh, I can't decide if, you know, this is all just one big ploy for me to get, have the best chance of getting in because how can they say no to, to the story? Right. You know, or whether I'm, like, totally blackballing myself for life. So <laughs> I feel like either way, it's going to be out of my control. <laughs> Where do you see Grantland going in the future? I mean, it's a, it's a new site. It's kind of finding its way. I know J- Jonah Carey, who's a brilliant baseball writer and a friend of the show, recently joined on, and there's Chuck Klosterman, and we all know what he's about, and Bill Simmons, and Dave Jacoby and his uh, uh, reality show writing. Where do, where, do you, what, where do you see the site, and where do you see your role in the site kind of evolving? Like, what do you hope um, for? Well, I think, um, I think a lot of the site is, is going to continue to um, you know, not change in any meaningful way, but, but just evolve, um, especially when you consider that, you know, we launched um, basically as sports was shutting down for the summer. I mean, there's, you know, there's been all the, the lockout stuff and, um, you know, baseball season and, and that, but, but usually when you're, you know, usually this is kind of the, the you know, the dog days of summer and for sports. So, um, you know, I think we're, it's going to continue to have a great mix of content from some really incredible writers. Um, the fact that Colson Whitehead did that series about the world, you know, the World Series of Poker was, um, you know, the kind of thing that you find in, like, Harper's Magazine and, um, you know, and, and, but then we also have, you know, Bill Barnwell who's doing, like, nitty-gritty football writing. So um, I just see it as being like, this great place where you can go and find such a variety of pieces from such a, um, you know, a range of writers. And, um, you know, you know, the fact that we've been, we've had such great stuff already and, you know, half the seasons aren't even happening just makes me think like, oh man, like when football season starts, it's going to be incredible. And, um, I'm excited for that. 
Um, and I think as far as my role, um, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to, like I said, you know, find interesting things to write about um, and meaningful stories. And, and then also, you know, I'm, you know, I came from the, the blog world and, and the blog comment world and the news group world. And so I also have an appreciation for just, you know, smaller, you know, more random day-to-day type stuff. So, um, you know, hopefully I'll be able to contribute, you know, on both fronts. Are you are you pushing for a, a message board on Grantland, and have you volunteered <laughs> to be the uh, moderator? <laughs> oh man, I mean, like the uh, I, I do miss the old school like chat rooms and message boards. Do, um, do you ever do it yeah, occasionally? I mean, I, do, you, do is there any message boards you still like to post on? Message boards? No, I mean, like I basically stopped like, going on like actual like Usenet like right around the time that I fled from my web of lies and defeat on the hockey boards. But, um, <laughs> but you know, like, in terms, like, I, I still read, you know, a ton of blogs, and I love, you know, commenting, and, um, you know, Twitter and, and Tumblr, and this, and this have, you know, taken the place of a lot of that, um, you know, kind of ongoing communication. But yeah, it's fun. It's, it's like, you know, writing more about hockey and stuff. It's been fun to go, you know, read some of the... I mean, a lot of them are off of, like, Usenet now and on, like, you know, HF boards and stuff, but... So, you, I know you the have community. a... I know you have a follow-up piece on your Islanders column. What, what else are you working on? What can we look forward to reading uh, on Grantland from Katie Baker in the future? Um, well, I'm going to be... Um, when the hockey season begins again in earnest, I'm going to be doing a lot of, um, you know, ongoing hockey coverage, which I'm really excited about. Um, and then, you know, until then, have a couple, you know, kind of longer-term things I've been working on. Um, one about, um, it probably sounds kind of random, but, um, <laughs> like, one about um, deaf athletics. And then um, I've also had a feature I've been writing for a while, or not, not writing, but working on for a while about um, the business of ski maps. So when I say random topics, I mean it. All right, so the sportscasters are here with Katie Baker from Grantland.com. Of course, the new project from Bill Simmons and ESPN.com. Uh, you can find her on Twitter. She is at Katie Bakes. Uh, one thing I have to say, Katie, is when you start off writing about weddings, nothing else is random from that point. So no- nothing is going to uh, surprise us from that point on. But uh, you mentioned you're going to be the big hockey girl, and we got the big hockey team here in Buffalo, a new owner. Terry Pagula, and I want to extend an open invitation to you. Anytime you want to come to Buffalo and to the HSBC Arena and watch a game, we'll be more than glad to host you. And uh, I am totally going to take you up on that because I'm I'm very you know I'm a big fan of uh, Buffalo having a good hockey team. So and I'm happy we. to see that he, the new owner, has certainly been opening his pockets to help make that happen. <laughs> yeah, we are very much excited about it, and we love hockey on this podcast. And it was it's good to good to touch base with you today hopefully we can uh, have an ongoing relationship and hopefully you enjoyed podcast we can do it again in the future and that offer i'm gonna make you now that you said you want to take me up on it i'm gonna make sure it happens this fall sometime <laughs> you have to come down to buffalo and see see a hockey game or two and uh write about it on grantland write about how great buffalo is because we could we could um, use uh we could use the uh the plug yeah no i'm excited and thanks for having me on and um and congrats to your brother. And, um, yeah, I look forward to talking to you more. All right. Thanks, Katie. We'll stay in touch. All right. Take care. Thanks. Thank you.
All right, we're back. Got to thank Katie Baker for that from Grantland.com. Katie was a delight. Her first podcast appearance. That I felt like she was a little nervous in the beginning, but then kind of got with the flow, kind of loosened up there towards the end. Yeah, a little bit. She was good, though. All right, we want to thank Katie, and uh, hopefully we can do more with Grantland.com. Certainly a all-star cast. I did say that Katie was the first person from Grantland on, but technically Jonah Carey is now a well, Grantland right, yeah. writer, and we've had him on, so... All right, five on fantasy. We've been coming into that cute, sweet little Pearl Jam number there, but Don and our elves are feverishly working <laughs> on some three things type production. It's a little more intense for football. Yeah, we need something a little bit better than that, but this isn't five on fantasy, and the third time we're trying it, and I think it is something that we both feel comfortable probably doing in the long term, uh, especially on our non-fantasy-specific podcast. I think we may do a fantasy-specific podcast or two or three, We'll see how that evolves, but in the non-fantasy-specific podcast, we still do want to talk a little bit about fantasy football, especially as we get closer to draft times. I know it seems like this week we've been organizing in the leagues that I'm in dates and making sure leagues don't overlap and things like that. It seems like if there's ever been a year for late drafts, this is it. Just because everything is happening in the league late, right. it seems like you'd be better off waiting till the last possible minute to draft. It'll be interesting to see, too. I heard, uh, I can't remember who was the interview, but someone mentioned that they expect to see more injuries this year because there's less time to prepare. I wonder if the other side of that could be argued that there'd be less injuries. Fresher because bodies. Yeah, there'll just be less I think the injuries that are going to come up are the hamstring, quad, muscle kind of things. Yeah, maybe. Seems like those. I mean, an ACL is, has nothing to do with preparing. Right, right. That's just a, you know, a fluke. I think the preparation work could come in is the hamstrings and quads and things like that. Uh, not a part of my five on fantasy, but something I wanted to mention. I did a mock draft the other night on ESPN.com. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, I like you it know, too. It's so fun. And anytime you can even get like a friend or two in the room. And uh, what I did was I mentioned that I thought three might be my, my favorite spot if I got to pick. So I practiced a draft if I was able to get three. And th- the results were good. And I think maybe I'll do a mock draft and maybe share it as part of my five on fantasy next week. Right. Also not part of my uh, five on fantasy points to hit on today. But since you brought it up, if you're in a league that doesn't let you know your draft position until the day of the draft. I hate that. Change it. I mean, it's yeah, that's so, terrible. so much easier for everyone else to prepare. Like Steve said, you can go into a mock draft and you can sit in the seat that you think you're going to, that you're going to have for that draft. So I think, I think that's huge. I would bring, and, it, bring it up to your commissioner. And your league starts really when everyone has a position. Right. When First everyone has on the clock. Yeah. That, the league has started and people can talk about maybe trading spots. And, yeah. You know, if you don't know that information until the draft, there's less chance for trades and fun. And everyone's more prepared, and it's just it's just a better way to do it. If your league doesn't do it, you're you're doing it wrong. <laughs> All right, officially, my first thing for five on fantasy for the next couple of weeks, my first thing is going to be my top ten at the major fantasy positions. I think I'll do receiver today. Follow up with tight end next week. Some leagues have tight ends included, some don't. So I will do it. Also, running back and quarterback. So. First, wide receivers, number 10. I have Mike Wallace. A lot of people have Mike Wallace higher than 10. I've seen him as high as 4. I'd like to see him do it first. I think that's crazy. I'd like yeah. to see him do it a little bit more as well, but I feel like 10 a comfortable position for him. And I know Roethlisberger is going to have a full season to work with him, and he's really fast. He's one of the fastest players in the NFL. Yeah. He's going to be a big play guy, but I think he's also going to have a couple of weeks where he goes 2 for 39 and disappoints you. Right. Uh, my number nine re- receiver is Miles Austin of the Dallas Cowboys. 
This is someone I had trouble deciding exactly where I wanted him. First of all, I think he's um, he's a self-made pro. Yeah. You know, he's a guy who was a kind of an afterthought in Hard Knocks when they were on Hard Knocks a few years ago in the shadow of Terrell Owens and Terry Glenn. And he's worked his way up to the number one receiver in Dallas. I think if he's your number one receiver, you're happy. Uh, I think there's just still a group of guys who are maybe a little bit ahead of him. He started off last year fantastic, too, and he kind of dropped off and I as think the that Cowboys was, did. But. Well, and Tony Romo broke his collar. Well, right, right. And that's going to hurt. But with Roy Williams gone... Uh, I think it's going to be a big year for Miles Austin. My number eight is Greg Jennings. The hardest – Greg Jennings is a lot like Marquise Colston and the Saints receivers where their quarterback is so good that he spreads it out to so many weapons yeah. that sometimes it's hard to know. Greg Jennings is probably the best target, but don't forget that Donald Driver is there, that Jermichael Finley is going to be back and is going to get balls. They re-signed James Jones. He's going to get balls. And the balls are spread out so much, I think that eight is really fair for Jennings. He's going to be great. He's someone you'll be happy with. But For comparison, again, ESPN has him at three, so that's quite a, quite a difference. Number seven, I have Reggie Wayne. Uh, just steady. You can count on him. As long as Peyton Manning's neck is okay and everyone says it will be, I think you're going to get exactly what you expect to get out of him. He's kind of the safe pick in wide receivers because he just does it year after year after year and you know what to expect my number six is a guy who i think maybe could be number one if we were talking about the most talented wide receiver and that's larry fitzgerald i think he's going to get a great boost this season having kevin cobb in the backfield or as his quarterback we talked with mclovin earlier in the show a little bit about cobb and fitzgerald and i think fitzgerald is, is sure to have a good year my top five number five i struggled with because I've seen him higher than five, and I don't, I'm confused, but it's Hakeem Nix. He's a guy that really, he's em- he's guy, one yeah. really emerged last year. I've seen him in top threes. I've seen him at five and, and a little lower, but I've seen him in everyone's top ten. Consensus top ten guy, another guy who plays really well. Steve Smith is injured. Uh, isn't officially signed by the Giants, but isn't really officially signed by anyone else either. And one way or another, I don't think he's going to have that competition this year. I think Mario Manningham's going to be the number two. I'm going to mention him in, the, in my next one. But uh, I like Hakeem Nix for a big year. Number four is a guy who's going to have a huge year, I think, and that's Vincent Jackson. Uh, he sat out the first 10 weeks last year, never really got going. He's going to have a full season, full camp. Phillip Rivers loves to throw the ball all around that field, and Vincent Jackson, I think, is going to be a stud this year. My top three. Number three, Calvin Johnson. Can't go wrong with Calvin Johnson, especially if his quarterback is going to be healthy this year. He's bound to stay healthy for longer than he's he has. He's bound to stay eventually. healthy one of, these, one of these years. And Calvin Johnson is obviously a stud. And also, it'll be interesting to see if the Lions are a more competitive team if you lose a little bit from Calvin Johnson because he's always been so great in the fourth quarter. Uh, but we'll see how that works out. My number two is Roddy White. The reason I have Roddy White so high as number two is just because, again, I think it's really, really, you can count on it. I think it's safe. If you're going to use a late first round or early second round pick on a wide receiver, Roddy White is someone you can trust. His numbers are great. I think Julio Jones, that draft pick, is only going to make him better. Julio Jones is someone I've followed since he's in high school. So the five-star recruit out of high school. Uh, went to Alabama, number one first-round pick in the NFL. And I think Roddy White is going to benefit from that. And my number one is Andre Johnson, as I think that's generally a consensus. Absolutely. Um, my 
first thing to bring up today is one also, second before yeah. we go on. You had ESPN's top ten in front of you. Yeah, I'm mean, gonna just go down. It real yeah, quick. go down it real quick. This is what ESPN thinks. Ten Miles Austin, nine Reggie Wayne, eight Vincent Jackson, seven Mike Wallace, six Larry Fitzgerald, five Calvin Johnson, four Hakeem Nix, three Greg Jennings, two Rowdy White, one Andrew Johnson. So he had all the same players just in different orders. Gotcha. I think. Um, I had a question about it, but I can't remember. My first point I bring up also has to do with wide receivers, and that is kind of a comparison between you've got Ilcho Cinco now on New England, and you've got Plaxico Burris with the Jets. I think Plaxico Burris is clearly the more talented player at this point in their career. I mean, he's I a 34 year old receiver. He's been out of the game for a couple years after shooting himself and having to go to prison. <laughs> uh, he's interesting. Yeah, I think they're both really interesting, and I guess I was curious, what would your take be on them? ESPN ranks them. They have Ocho Cinco at 37 and Plaxico at 44, so they rank them pretty closely. Well, I think I think Chad Johnson is closer to a starter than than that in a three-wide receiver set. So you like Chad Ocho so I like, more? I like him more as like a top 30 guy, right, right between probably 27 and 30. Uh, because I think that he's going to find he runs great routes, and I think he's going to be someone that Tom Brady's going to learn to trust, similar to Wes Welker. Would you rather have him than Santana Moss? Yes. They have Santana Moss at 29. How about uh, Braylon Edwards, who doesn't even have a team right now, I guess? I'd have to say yes for right now until S- I know what team Steve Smith, on. Carolina? Yes. Michael Crabtree? Yes. Okay, so you're probably just going to Johnny Knox, I think, clearly. I'm, I'm surprised that he falls below some of these guys. Yeah, I think Chad Johnson, if you have him as your number three, you're okay. If you have him as your number four, you're thrilled. Do you agree that maybe Plaxico has a higher upside, though? Well, Plaxico has Santonio Holmes on the other side. That, yeah, New England doesn't have – New England has Welker, but Welker is going to catch Welker passes no matter what. Right. More of a slot receiver is going to catch six, seven-yard passes all day. Probably the, a great choice in a PPR. I, I posed this question actually hoping it would be closer, but I, I agree with you. I think Ocho Cinco is clearly the safer, probably better pick, mostly because of the quarterback. You could start Chad Ocho Cinco right now. I don't think you could justify probably starting no, Plaxico Burris. Plaxico Burris right now is a backup wide receiver, but he's an interesting guy to take a flyer on if you can get him at the right price and the right time. If you're starting Plax, I think you're starting him in a league where – you drafted quarterback, two running backs, two wide receivers, and maybe a tight end before it. And he just happens to be your third receiver and at your and that's probably your weakest position in your starting lineup. I agree. My number two thing here, or the number three thing in five on fantasy, is I just wanted to give some sleepers at wide receiver. Some of them are deeper sleepers than others. My first one is Steve Breston, who has moved on from Arizona to Kansas City. I don't think he's someone you're going to want to go into the season as a starter by any means, but I think he's a guy you can get in the later rounds that's good depth and just kind of wait and see what kind of connection he builds with Matt Castle. Dwayne Bowe is sometimes a hit or miss kind of guy, which is why he wasn't in my top 10. He's probably athletically, he should be in the top 10. He just hasn't emerged that way. It'll be interesting to see how the Chiefs use Breston. It's, it's a pick that I, a free agent signing that I like for them. And I'll be interested to see how he is used to a later round sleeper. Another one is Mike Thomas with the Jacksonville Jaguars. I think you'd probably have to call him the number one there. Am I right about that? 
Uh, Mike Sims Walker is no longer on the team. Yeah, who? Yeah, who else would there be? I think Mike Thomas is an example of a guy that you can get in the late rounds and have a starter on his team. You know, sometimes, like, let's say you're picking in the fifteenth round and you're choosing between Robert Meacham or Mike Thomas. I might like Mike Thomas better because he's a starter on his team, where Robert Meacham is a number three wide receiver on the Saints. I'm, I'm totally drawing a blank here. Who was the player for Jacksonville that had a great season, like one season Mike ago? Mike Sims-Walker. It was Sims-Walker? Yeah. Okay, so never mind then. Uh, my third sleeper is Lance Moore. He's a Saints player that the Saints re-signed. They spent a significant amount of money to re-sign him. Drew Brees loves Lance Moore. And Lance Moore is going to have a couple of decent games for you. He's a good spot start. Maybe a guy that you like to have on your bench to be able to spot to start when you have a top guy on bye week. ESPN has him at uh, 38, one below Ocho Cinco. Yeah, I think he's the perfect number four wide receiver. Would you, ra- would you rather have him or Plaxico Burris? I think I'd rather have Lance Moore. Lance Moore? Yeah. I've had Lance Moore in the past, and he is a good starter. The problem is, like you said, even with uh, You never know where those balls are going to go. Right. They've got, who is it, Henderson and... Uh, Henderson and Colston. Colston. And who's the other guy? Darren Sproles is there. Uh, you have Jimmy Graham. Isn't there another receiver? Devery Henderson. Henderson. Or did so. I say Henderson? Who are the two receivers they have that are mostly... They have Colston, Meacham, and Henderson. Oh, Meacham and Henderson. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you never know who the balls are going to go to. It does seem like... Uh, when he needs an important catch, Moore is who Moore's, looks for. Moore's a really good number four. The next one I have is, is probably not as deep as a, of a sleeper. It's Mario Manningham. He's a good player, and with Steve Smith kind of falling out of the picture in New York, I think he's firmly the number two guy. He goes deep. He makes good plays. He's a guy I'm circling on my list. I wouldn't mind having him on my teams this year. Um, if Hakeem Nix can't quite live up to the billing as a top guy, I think this will be the guy who picks up the pieces. Okay, Mario Manningham, ESPN. And the only reason I use their rankings for they're pretty universal. Are, they're pretty universal, yep. and, but ESPNs are nicely organized, and it's just an easy website to remember. But uh, Manningham, they have him at 23, so an early Yeah, I, I think he's your third guy. Um, do you like – the guy I'm surprised they have much higher than him at number 17 is Brandon Lloyd. And the only reason I say I'm surprised by that is because there's somewhat of a quarterback controversy in Denver. Right, in Denver. I would much feel a lot better about Brandon Lloyd if they go with Kyle Orton than I would if they go with Tim Tebow. I think I'd rather have Manningham than Lloyd. I guess these are all decisions that, like we said last week, it's way too early to probably set in stone, so this is why you don't set your lineups four weeks before the season Just one more guy I want to throw out. He's injured right now. I don't know how seriously he's injured, but it's something to watch. And it's Jacoby Ford. Out in Oakland. He's a Florida Gator. He was on the national championship teams. He's super talented. Uh, definitely a guy to watch. I think he fell in the draft. Maybe there was some character issues, so it was a perfect place uh, in Oakland there for him. And he kind of emerged towards the end of last season. I think he's maybe more right now of a number five, maybe a number four receiver. But he's someone to keep an eye on and see where he goes how his preseason goes and where the beginning of the season goes for him. All right. My second thing, uh, I love taking tight ends early, like maybe earlier than their projections. I just think the advantage you end up with at tight end, let me rephrase that. I think the drop-off at tight end is more severe than at any position. I think once you get beyond maybe the top, I have a top three for myself personally, and I have that as Gates, Clark, and Finley. Finley I would probably have as my number two if he didn't get hurt 
uh, get a season-ending injury this year, but hopefully that's gone. The next two guys are probably Witten and Vernon Davis. Vernon Davis has really only done it one year, but it was one really, really good year. And then beyond that, I don't want any of those guys, or if I do... You don't want Zach Miller anymore with him going to the Seahawks. That right. That doesn't... That's not a So, character. I mean, after that, there's like Owen Daniels, Mercedes Lewis, who have nice, who can probably be nice players, but for me, there's probably 10 of those guys. So, Antonio Gates is like putting an extra receiver out. So, if your opponent doesn't have Gates, Clark, or Witten, every week you're starting with a four, five, six-point edge. And... Gates ESPN has projected as their 36th, so a fourth-round pick. I might take Gates in the third just because I'll, I'll know every single week, as long as he's healthy, I'm going to have an advantage going into that lineup. They have Clark and Finley at 50 and 61. I'm definitely not waiting until the seventh round to take Finley or the early sixth, late fifth to pick Clark. Whitten and Davis, like I said, I don't like them quite as much. What about Owen Daniels? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like he was supposed to have that big year last year. He's always, but he's always hurt off and on. I, I don't like to put him in that group just yet. He's probably like in a group maybe by himself, with maybe him and Mercedes Lewis, and then everybody else. And then I think there's some emerging guys: Jimmy Graham with the Saints, Brandon Pettigrew with the again both, Lions, both really good guys on teams with a ton of weapons. Rob Gronkowski, who was. If you got him when he scored, he was great. Gronkowski right. would score a touchdown or two for 10 yards or 20 yards. Jermaine Same. Gresham is maybe a guy who could emerge. Yeah, there's a lot of guys. Dustin Keller is another touchdown machine. If he's not scoring a touchdown, he's always doing nothing for you. Tony Moyaki, same thing. Had a decent year, but I just feel that we're already up to like the 18th, 19th tight end. Right. I'm only going to draft one of them. So right. I like to have one of those top three guys going into the draft. If not, I want one of the top fives, and I'll, re- I'll reach for it if I have to. Now, is it your preference to be in a league where tight ends are considered wide receivers, or is it your preference to be in a league where tight ends are drafted individually? I like the tight end as an individual only because they're kind of forgotten about in leagues where they're wide receivers. Like that, What I just said doesn't hold true. I'm not going to reach on Gates. I'm going to treat him as though he were a wide receiver if he's just going to fill the wide receiver tight end slot. But it, it it's a little different strategy, and you can kind of control a draft. If you're... If you're that guy sitting at the end of the third round and maybe there's not a running back that you love or a wide receiver that you love, and you take Antonio Gates, you might mold the next round of that draft because there might be a run of tight ends all of a sudden. Or you might cause, a, or even if you cause the run two rounds later, that means there's more wide receivers or running backs that you need to fill because you drafted a tight end that will still be available. All right, the last thing today for Five on Fantasy, and Don and I are going to do this probably every other week or so. We're going to Just do a real quick mock draft of the first round just to see where we kind of feel first round is headed. Uh, We're going to go back and forth, every other guy. And why don't we do 10 make two picks? Because if if you end up with 10, you're kind of 10 in one guy anyway. Right. And you kind of make those picks as a pair. So we'll go back and forth and 10 will be picking two. So go ahead and you can start it off. Well, I'm going st- to I'm going to go with uh, Adrian Peterson. I I don't think McNabb makes them a formidable team by any means, but he makes them better than probably Tavares Jackson would. And at least teams will have to be a little bit honest. So, I'm going to go with Peterson first overall. Um, if I had second pick and Peterson was gone, I think I would go Arian Foster. For some reason I like him a little bit better than Charles Johnson or than Chris, Chris Johnson. Johnson. I actually I think I have Chris Johnson just slightly higher. I like that they have a quarterback and uh 
an emerging Kenny Britt to keep defenses honest. Hasselbeck's not a stud by any means, but I think he can do enough to keep eight men out of the box against Johnson. All right. I'm going to pick Ray Rice then. I think uh, I like him a little bit more than Jamal Charles and Maurice Jones-Drew, who I would consider here. It's too early for a quarterback or a wide receiver, and I love Rice. I'm going to take Jamal Charles. I love his talent. I think if Thomas Jones wasn't there, he might be in that top three or four, I guess. you could. I think you could argue him for the first overall pick. He's just he's that electric, so I'm going to take Jamal Charles. All right, then with the sixth pick, I'm going to select Maurice Jones-Drew from the Jacksonville Jaguars. Thought about LaShawn McCoy right there, but think Jones-Drew is a little safer. I saw someone on a draft on a message board said they took Rashad Jennings in the fifth round. Is there something I don't know about Jones-Drew? Like, is there any worry that he's not going to start the season? No. Okay, that was just a a bad bad pick pick then. Uh, With my next pick, I don't remember what we're on. Seven. Seven. I'm going to go with... I would say LaShawn McCoy. That said... You worried about Ronnie Brown? They picked now? up Ronnie Brown, and I'm not—I wouldn't say worried about him, but Ronnie Brown is a bigger body. He might take a few carries, and it might just be enough to make me go with Andre Johnson. So that's where I'll go with this pick. All right, I've been kind of stuck on the fact that I want a running back in this draft. There's already six gone out of seven picks, so I am going to pick Lashawn McCoy. Okay, and then at that point, the running backs drop off a little bit, so I might even—oh, is this ten? Nope, this would be pick number nine. Okay, right, you'll have ten. I, I'll take Roddy White then. Okay. All or, right. Or scratch that. I'll take... Uh, I'll, no, I'll take Roddy White. All right, Don takes Roddy right Now, so the first round has gone like this. We've had seven running backs and two receivers in the top nine. I'm drafting two picks right now, and then I'm going to have to sit and wait a while. And so I have to kind of decide what's going to come off the board. Well... What's going to come off the board is a lot of running backs. So I'm going to pick Michael Vick 10th. It's going to give me a little protection if my running backs aren't great because he's going to run the ball a little bit. And because I just I just got a hunch. So I'm going to pick Michael Vick. And then I'm going to pick Darren McFadden. And that might be a reach, but I feel like I need a running back. And I know he's not going to be there again. That's interesting. You like... McFadden better than Mendenhall. Just slightly. And Turner, I think, is just kind of a boring guy. I don't want Turner. And that's the only guys ESPN has in between there. Huh. Yeah, it's inter- Michael Vick is a really interesting... I bet you a lot of people would call up or write to us if we didn't pick Vick in that spot and say, what are you doing? He's Definitely write to year. us, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Let us know how you would mock the first round right now. Who should be in it that we didn't pick? Who shouldn't be in it that we did? Always open for suggestions. Again, the email is thesportscasters at gmail.com. Now, the next segment of the show is going to be an interview with a guy named Dan Shanka. And he's a scout, okay? And the interview is kind of, I kind of tried to keep it where we were talking about rookies. Now, one of my fantasy leagues has a rookie draft. I think it's a horrible idea, but they do it. Rookies are a big part of fantasy football. So we talked a lot about rookies. How does that work since we're in the fantasy segment? Uh, basically, you, you can't you, – there's two rounds and – How do you decide who picks first? It's inversion of however the first round is. So if you have first pick in the first round, you have last pick in the rookie draft? Right. 
And then you have them for three years. Without giving anything Without up? giving them anything oh, up okay. for three years. They can only be traded for rookies. Okay. To me, it's an experiment that didn't work that they just won't give up on because they think they need to prove it worked. <laughs> I, was I think I've done things in my leagues before that I tried. They didn't work. I don't do them anymore. I think it's closer to working because they do at least for the first two rounds and you don't give anything up. But otherwise, if you had just a rookie draft where it was one round long, there'd probably be maybe four guys that were worth even owning. Well, this happened to me the very first year they did it. There was It was the year of the big rookie running back. There was all these good running backs as rookies. This one, Steve Slayton was picked. And maybe McFadden was a rookie that year. And there was a bunch of running backs. And I was the last pick. I picked Malcolm Kelly and Devin Thomas, who were both Both second-round picks of Washington, saying, all right, one of these guys is going to play out. (laughs) Of course, neither of them did. And that was a bust. But really, there was no – I mean, I could have picked Matt Ryan there, which I think was the first pick after me was Matt Ryan. And Matt Ryan's been okay, but – You never know with a quarterback. I don't know. Yeah. It's going to take three years for them to develop. All right, so we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with uh, NFL scout Dan Shanka, and then we will be back with pick four. Our next guest is from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and is a graduate of the University of Iowa. He has spent the last 39 years involved in player personnel work. He has scouted for National Football Scouting, the Philadelphia Eagles, Washington Redskins, the Kansas City Chiefs, and the Philadelphia Stars of the USFL. He is the author of a book for football players and coaches called Do It to Win and has edited a collection of motivational material called A Coach's Handbook of Motivational Messages. From 1988 to 1997, with the help of his wife Peggy, he published Dan and Peggy's College Football Preview. He has coached the game, recruited high school athletes for major college football programs, and scouted professionally. In 2004, again with the help of his wife, they took the responsibility of continuing the longest independent NFL scouting service, Our Lads NFL Scouting Service. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Dan Shanka. How are you doing today, Dan? I'm doing great. Well, that's quite an introduction. I tell you what, I thought uh, I might have been related to you there for a second. Yeah, it was such a such a long intro. I stumbled on my own t- tongue a couple times. We actually have to fix it in editing. <laughs> such an incredible long career in the world of football. I don't think I've ever talked to anyone who's been in the game quite as long as you. Uh, maybe Mike Lombardi would challenge you and be close. But other than that, you're you're the senior... Now I'm the most senior member of our, our football club here. But I'm really excited to have you on. I'm really excited, I'm sure as you are, to be talking football again, uh, talking about the players and the games and the things like that instead of talking about stays and unions and lockouts because I know that really got boring over here. But I guess the first thing I want to ask you is maybe just to tell us a little bit about our lads, what it is. Uh, how it works, who your audience is. Maybe just we could start there. Well, I'll tell you, uh, our lab scouting service was uh, developed uh, over 30 years ago by Tom Hepler and his uh, group of uh, scouts that uh, were in the Philadelphia, New York area. And uh, they're big draft fans. And 
I actually met Tom when I was with the Eagles, and um, he lived in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. In fact, Tom was actually the first one to ever use uh, computers in scouting, and he, his background, he was a, 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 a troubleshooter for the Motorola uh, computer company back in the 50s and the 60s. So that kind of tells you, I mean, back then, you know, computers would fill a whole room, a, a one computer. So it, it, Tom went that far back. But anyway, uh, and he facts out uh, draft reports and things like that. He'd go to the draft every year in New York. And uh, But uh, he and his band of lads uh, scoured the country, um, going to all the all-star games and everything. And I actually met Tom, like I said, in Philadelphia while I was scouting with the Eagles. And uh we became pretty good friends, and then uh, after um, uh, Tom Wander retired, I took over uh, the Arlad Scouting Service, and uh, all my scouts, uh, our former NFL, ours, you know, have worked with NFL teams and all former NFL scouts. So, uh, you know, we feel like we've got um, a great background and kind of give the fans uh, a feel of. Uh, what the reports are like that you see in the draft rooms and things like that. We put together a draft guide every year that um, our website fans can can see that uh, uh, our draft guide is actually the only guide that the NFL puts out on all the team tables during the draft. And we've got a, picture, a couple pictures, I guess, from the last few years uh, on our website. Uh, but um, then we do a draft review. We do monthly newsletters. Uh, and things like that, and of course, uh, uh, try to keep everything updated on our website. But um, uh, we've got a lot of subscribers uh, that uh, just get our information. I do consulting for different NFL teams, and you know, you mentioned Michael and Marty earlier, and I worked with Mike for a couple of years when he was in Philadelphia in the pro department there, and I, uh, I was in, uh, you know, I was a, a college scout, so uh, we we kind of worked together there a little bit and everything, but. That's kind of it in a nutshell, uh, but, um, you know, it's, it's exciting uh, that this lockout is over. Uh, we've been studying tape though, all summer, actually, on the 2012 draft. So, uh, you know, we get our, our draft. We also put on a draft preview for the 2012 draft. That'll be out in, in uh, August. So we got quite a variety for fans, and then the newsletters have the free agency information and in fact, right now on our website, all our depth charts are free now. We used to uh, charge for those, but uh, we decided to go free. Uh, well, the depth charts, um, they're updated. We have a guy full-time, that uh, Jim Zabo, that up updates that uh, uh, on a daily basis after we get the information from the uh, NFL office and then uh, our free agents, um, the free agency board is uh, updated uh, as contracts are signed and things like that so that that's on the site but there's a lot of good stuff on on our website that fans can go to and and uh, look at yeah the depth charts is fantastic and i imagine this would be a great tool for fantasy football players uh some of our listeners do enjoy fantasy football and they probably don't even realize what a great resource this would be as far as who's the number one receiver on a team or who's the number two who's going to line up in the slot things like that it seems like a really great resource yeah, well, I'll tell you what, uh, Jim Zabel has done, has done these depth charts for, I guess, about as long as uh, he's been with Tom, and, or was with Tom. Tom retired now, but uh, uh, he still uh, 
uh, we still visit with Tom Hepler every so often, and his son, Phil, who is really uh, a great resource. He does things for us after the combine uh, in regards to uh, analysis, uh, statistical analysis of the players at the combine. When we get verified information, we, everything we do is by verified information because, you know, you can't just use estimated things because um, hey, a lot of times you'll go in and the guy may be shorter or taller or uh, right. uh, way more or he can't run as fast or what have you. So we like to get all verified information and then pass that on to the fans. So let's talk a little bit about the players that are coming into the league this year, the rookies. You got you have obviously studied tape on the all the players as you get ready for the draft. You mentioned that you're already preparing for the 2012 draft, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to talk about some of the rookies coming into the league, and I guess we might as well start right at the top with Cam Newton. As far as you're concerned, someone with your experience and background in scouting, is this guy a guy that would, on a normal average year, be a first overall pick, or was it more just that it was a, a year where there wasn't the top QB and Carolina was in desperate need? Or do you think this is a guy who should be a first pick and it's going to have a career like a, I don't want to say like a Peyton Manning or maybe like a Drew Bledsoe, someone who was a first pick, very productive, had a very good career. Is that what you expect, or do you expect Cam to struggle in the NFL? Well, I, I tell you, I think he's going to struggle because he's really only started one year in major college football, and uh, I think that uh, obviously he's a very good athlete. I mean, uh, uh, but I think the reason Carolina decided to take him with the first pick, I, they could have used a lot of other players, uh, you know, Bunkley from uh, uh, Alabama, uh, could have went with Peterson out of LSU at corner. They need the big uh, cover corner. Uh, they could have went in different directions, but I think once they projected what the first pick in the draft was going to be, $22 million, it wasn't like they're going to throw $50 million, um, at, at you know guaranteed money at him. And then if he did not pan out, uh, they'd really take a bath. But uh, I think that the big thing is uh, Newton's just going to need time to develop. And uh, hey, all, all those quarterbacks that come in the league generally do, unless you get lucky, uh, like uh, Matt Ryan, where he's got a real good running game going for him. He's got a good defense. And he just has to play within himself and, and uh, really avoid losing the game as opposed to winning it. Now, now he can go out with his experience and go out and try to win the games. But uh, uh, Newton's, I mean, the biggest thing that we always worried about Cam Newton was, hey, is he going to pay the price to be a great NFL quarterback? Um, I'll give you a brief story. Uh, when I was scouting Peyton Manning um, at the University of Tennessee, I was there late one night watching tape, probably about, I guess it was about 1030 and I go down to uh, get a can of pop uh, during, took a little break there, and uh, I see somebody out in the corner of the indoor facility uh, at Tennessee uh, in this kind of a white over-the-top look, but there's somebody by themselves over there in the corner working out and things, and uh, so as I come down the stairs, and he's got these little alcoves, I'm looking for a pop machine, I, I hear somebody yell across the field, says, hey, coach, you know, what are you looking for? And I said, hey, Peyton, is that you? And <laughs> And he said, yeah, and so anyway, I go across the field, I, I talked to him earlier in the day, but anyway, I go across the field, and uh, I said, what are you doing here at 1030 at night? And he says, he says, hey, coach, I got a lot of weaknesses that I got to work on, and uh, 
you know, he's working on his drop backs, uh, getting his footwork down and, and things like that. And uh, I don't know if Cam Newton will do that. You know what I mean? I, right. I don't know if uh, he'll pay the price. to. I mean, Peyton, he knew his strengths and weaknesses and always worked on his weaknesses. And uh, that's the thing that Bob is probably, you know, most bothersome about Cam Newton because to be an NFL quarterback, you know, Tom Brady was in my area. Tom Brady was one of the most competitive guys uh, that I'd ever been around. And I gave him a fourth-round grade, but I guess I missed him, too. He went, I know he went the sixth, but uh, he's the NFL most valuable player last year. But uh, at least I wrote him and, and put him higher than a lot of other people. But Tom was very competitive. He worked very hard. Uh, you know, uh, Kurt Warner. I was the only scout to write Kurt Warner as a pro prospect. Uh there was another one guy. He only started one year, but he worked extremely hard. And, um, you know, so I just, you know, we just don't see that in, in, in Cam Newton, right, you know, right now coming out because he has such a short track record. But if he does pay the price to be a great quarterback, the talent is there, but your anticipation, when you're making your throws, and uh, the total package of being an NFL quarterback hey, all that stuff's still out, out there to find out if he's going to do it. So in the first round, we had Cam Newton. Then we had Blaine Gabbert. We had Jake Locker. Uh, Andrew Dalton was selected in this draft. Who do you think ultimately is going to – what quarterback did you like the most coming into the draft? Or who do you think is most prepared to have a good NFL career? Well, I tell you, a guy that we really liked was Christian Ponder. Um, I tell you, the, the thing that – Christian Ponder could do that we really like. I mean, there was other ones, too. I think we think Kaepernick is going to have a chance down the line. Uh, we don't think Jake Locker will have a chance uh, if he can develop a little bit because uh, we think that in Gabbert, he'll pay the price. Uh, he'll work hard. Uh, I, I mean, uh, I think those guys, uh, they'll pay the price to be, be great NFL quarterbacks. Now, whether they do it or not is a whole different story, but, but Christian Ponder was kind of one of our favorites. Um, you know, we, we had him, I think, uh, in our draft guide, he was about our third, I believe, as I recall, he's about our third-rated quarterback, third or fourth. But, you know, here's a guy that had great anticipation. He's extremely smart, always played at a high level, uh, did not make a lot of mistakes. Uh, he made a few, but um, not a lot of mental mistakes. This guy's brilliant. I mean, he had one master's degree after his, undergraduate was working on his other master's degree uh during his senior year uh you know fundamentally very sound football player and um and i think that sometimes people forget uh or don't evaluate the anticipation ability of a quarterback uh like kurt warner for instance kurt warner had just extremely outstanding anticipation when he was throwing the football uh, Ponder has got a lot of that also. It plus, Ponder has got great feet to avoid the rush and thing. I mean, he can sidestep a rush. He, he, um, you know, his little, uh, the, the three cone and things that they do and the, uh, you know, and the, and the shuttle and the, he, his shuttle time was like that of a, uh, defensive back. So, uh, he's, he ran like a three, nine, six or something like that. I mean, he just got extremely, quick feet getting to the setup point. So um, those are things. We, and, and Ponder, uh, he threw the ball. His uh, velocity throwing the ball was good. 
not as good as Kaepernick. Kaepernick uh, has a long delivery, but, you know, he threw that ball 59 miles an hour, which is, I mean, incredible. That was probably, I think, since we've been charting that over the past uh, several years, I think he's got the strongest throwing arm at 59 miles an hour, which, you know, you shoot with the radar gun there at the combine, and... Uh, so, but but Ponder was real good. He was uh, average, you know, with the rest of the quarterbacks doing that. But when you're talking about average, 55 miles an hour is uh, got pretty good zip on the ball. So, um, but anyway, Christian Ponder was kind of our favorite, I guess you'd say. Uh, uh, we like so, hey, we like Jake Locker. I mean, we like Kaepernick. We like uh, uh, Gabbert. Uh, you know, we like those guys, and and hope they all do well because we think they'll at least you know pay the price to be a great quarterback. So. Christian Ponder's in a situation now where he probably will spend at least the beginning of the season backing up Donovan McNabb and probably having a chance to learn from McNabb, where in comparison, Cam Newton's going to probably be rushed out onto the field. What do you think is, is a better situation for a rookie quarterback, or is it really more of a individual player-by-player basis? You know, maybe Aaron Rodgers was better suited to, to sit behind and watch, whereas Alex Smith, for example, in that same draft played right away, and maybe that was a hindrance. Yeah, I tell you, I, I think this, it, it kind of, you know, it depends. Uh, obviously, you're going to get better the more you're in there playing with live bullets, but you don't want to kill a guy's confidence either. Like David Carr, um, I did David Carr and uh, Harrington when Harrington came out of Oregon and, and Carr came out that first year. They were like the first and third draft choices that year. And actually, we like Harrington better than uh, Carr, but... You know, Carr, he, for three or four years in a row, he got sacked 70 times. I mean, that's like uh, every time you get hit, it's like a, you're in a car wreck. You know, these defensive ends, they snap your head back. when they hit. And I think his confidence is just completely shot. Uh, and, you know, it's just like, um, you know, going to war, uh, you know, getting shot at with bullets all the time. You know, you, you, uh, it, that affects you. And uh, I tell you what, as a pro quarterback, when you're getting uh, hammered, that affects you. And I think a perfect example is, uh, now here's Aaron Rodgers. He sat and, and observed for three years. And look at him coming out uh, just outstanding. When he got his chance to start, he, he, he got through all the controversy, the Brett Favre situation, Favre leaving. And then he had an outstanding uh, year. Then he comes back last year and they won the Super Bowl. And uh uh, Alex Smith, he got hit and bounced around and things like that. So, I mean, I think if you if you can have a veteran uh, ahead of a rookie quarterback, you, you bring him in at the right time and uh, let him develop behind that uh, uh, top-level quarterback, I think you're probably better off. But, hey, Aikman took his lumps. Elway took his lumps. They turned out okay. Um, I think it probably depends on the player, but if I had my preference, I would rather have a quarterback play, you know, study the guy ahead of him and, uh, for a year or two and before I threw him in the fire for good. We're here talking to Dan Shanka from Our Lad Scouting Service, uh, a little bit about the rookies coming into the National Football League this year. We're based in Buffalo, and I'm sure all of the Bills fans out there are really interested to see what you thought of their first-round pick, Marcel Darius. Loved him. Uh, outstanding football player. Uh, he's full-grown. Uh, he's a real man now. I'll tell you, he's, uh, he's a guy that uh, we thought could have easily went uh, also to Carolina with that first pick. Uh, 
they they could have used him. They you know they obviously signed Johnson uh, for the big money as a pass rusher this year, but they really needed an interior uh, presence. But uh, you know we think Marcel's going to do. He's he's very versatile. Here's a guy that in the three four scheme. He can play that end spot, but <clears throat> the thing that fans sometimes don't understand, or even a lot of media people. You know, you have a 3-4 scheme, but there's a lot of four-man fronts in that scheme, and uh, he's going to slide down inside and help help uh, stop the run. He can play off the edge uh, on pass-through situations. He can be moved inside. Um, you know, Kyle Williams, of course, there has done a tremendous – I mean, Kyle Williams is a great football player, and, uh, and here, here's a guy that gives it to you every down, uh, every time he straps on that helmet, he – you know, he gets, you know, crosses the, the line on the football field. He's a tremendous football player, and um, and they're trying to get more of those guys, and that's what uh, Marcel Darius is. I mean, he's a, a full-grown, um, I don't know, he's kind of built like an Angus bull. You know, he's got that big, thick neck and those thick shoulders and arms, and he can take on blocks and shed people. He's got strong hands, and uh, he's got that great build where he's got that big, thick butt, thick legs. Uh, he can anchor in there. Uh, he can take on double teams and stack at the point. Um, you know, he's he just uh, a really good football player, and I, I think he's. I thought it was a great pick uh, by Buffalo. Nick Fairley is a guy who jumps out as someone who maybe slipped down a little bit, but is going to play way ahead of where he was drafted. Is that maybe a guy that you look at as uh, being the best value in the draft, or is there maybe a guy drafted later in the first round that you think is going to be very, very good value for the team that picked him? Well, you know, I, I think I think on fairly, now I don't know if you've heard, but uh, it was either day or yesterday, he's got that, you know, got an injured foot, and he's kind of walking around in a boot and stuff right now, and... Uh, but we thought the best thing that happened to Fairley is that he went to Detroit because he's going to play right next to a guy that's going to kick his behind if he doesn't play hard because Fairley uh, was kind of a flash guy. He, he you know, he play, played well when he wanted to play well, um, and uh, a lot of times when you study him, he made his plays when he wasn't blocked. I mean, they they did a lot of angling and slanting and things at the Auburn, and sometimes, believe it or not, here's a guy on the backside trying to scoop him. Didn't get there because he is fairly is so quick. Well, heck, he'd get in there uh, and nobody even have a hand on him to block him, and man, he'd make that big hit and or make the big splash play, and everybody jumps up and down and says, "Wow, what a great player!" Well, hey, uh, you and I could make those plays if we weren't blocked, you know. But uh, when you get blocked, it's a whole different story. But now he gets drafted by Detroit. And he's playing right next to uh, maybe one of the greatest football players that's been on the horizon the last few years. And we called him Reggie White when he came was coming out, and that's Indomitian Sue. And that's the best thing that happened to Fairley because uh, Sue will take him behind the woodshed and work him over if he doesn't play hard. So, um, But I, I think this, I, I think uh, it, it going through um, – Guys that uh, uh, good values, uh, you know, you can can uh, Corey legit for, that uh, end up going to San Diego. We thought that he's a very good football player. Uh, really liked Ryan Kerrigan, who ended up going to Washington as 16th pick. But uh, Kerrigan, see, the thing is, you know, guys like uh, here's a guy that played in a four man front with his hand down. 
okay? Well, now he's drafted to play up uh, in that outside rush situation in the 3-4, and it's a different position. Now, we think Kerrigan is going to be able to do it, but, um, hey, when I was in Philadelphia, we drafted a guard one time, and this sounds simple, but it wasn't for him. I mean, uh, uh, he played, I can't remember his name now, but he always played right guard at Boston College, okay? For, he started for four years, very good player. We moved into left guard, or the coaches did, and uh, we had a great offensive line coach, too. I mean, Bill Callahan is the offensive line coach of the Jets right now. He was an offensive line coach, and he was a, he's a great football coach. I mean, he, he's, you could argue he's a top offensive line coach in the National Football League. Well, anyway, he couldn't get this guy uh, to play left guard. Now, he ended up moving finally back to right guard. But, you know, and that's, it sounds like it's simple, but your steps. And here's a guy that was used to playing right guard the whole time, trying to make him a left guard, and he had problems. And uh, that's the only thing you worry about on Kerrigan, that, hey, you know, here's a guy that can play him up, uh, you know, after he played down, because this guy is a tremendous pass rusher. I mean, a great pass rusher. Uh, hey, we thought J.J. Watt was a, a great value. Uh, also, that Houston got at, at the 11th pick. Um, really liked him. Uh, we like Nate Solder that went to New England. That's the 17th pick there right in the Bills division. But uh, Solder, uh, you know, we were he was our second uh, tackle, uh, right after Tyron Smith, and a lot of people had Solder way down the line, uh, but uh, he was our second guy. In fact, our, in our draft guide, the way they came off the board this this, uh, this draft and offensive tackles, uh, boom, 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 we had them just like that right in our draft guide. So uh, we hit them pretty good. But those are kind of the guys that, uh, you know, we liked, that we thought that uh, – um, you know, would be good values. Uh, a guy that we think is going to be a great football player, but he may not get much action for a year because he he blew his knee out at North Carolina. Is Bruce Carter? He went in the you know early part of the second round, but you know we thought he was a, a heck of a football player, and um, you know so he, he we felt like he was a another guy that it was a very good value, but. Uh, I tell you what, we liked Buffalo's draft a whole lot. I thought we thought you know that uh, got some good football players there. We like Calvin Shepard, uh, the linebacker. We like Aaron Williams, the guy that could play corner or uh, start him out in the nickel, but uh, could eventually work in the outside at corner. So you know, we thought Buffalo really had a nice draft too, especially you know starting off with uh, Marcel Darius. One position where you can really find impact usually in a draft is that running back. There was only one running back taken in the first round this year. That was Mark Ingram from the Saints. Who are some running backs you think that could maybe rush for 1,000 yards as a rookie here in the National Football League? Well, I'll tell you what. A guy that we absolutely loved, and he, he, he waited. Uh, or somehow he slipped to the sixth pick in the draft, or sixth round in the draft, which... Uh, is almost criminal, but I tell you, Tampa Bay end up getting him as Alan Bradford out of Southern Cal. I mean, this guy is a big man at 245 pounds, and, and we like big backs. And uh, and and that, I mean, you know, uh, we like Spiller last year. Obviously, uh, a great speed guy uh, out of Clemson that went to Buffalo, for instance. But we're we just like those big backs because, uh, like I talked about earlier. You get a quarterback when they're coming, when those defensive linemen are bearing down on them to make a sack, 
you know, they're going to light you up. And uh, same way with running backs, like you're in a car wreck. Every time they get hit, there's, you know, two guys going to plow right into them and try to knock them back and what have you. And that's why we do like the bigger, stronger backs, preferably guys 220 pounds uh, or bigger. And Alan Bradford was recruited to Southern Cal as a uh, uh, linebacker or strong safety kind of guy. Uh, he was about 220 pounds, 225 pounds coming into Southern Cal. Um, but uh, this guy is a full-grown man now. When he runs the ball, he is tough. He catches the ball well out of the backfield. Uh, you know, they had so many backs at Southern Cal. At one time, I think they had something like three of the top, you know, five or six running backs uh, that were recruited across the country over a two- or three-year period. And uh, they all, you know, kind of left out of there uh, for one reason or another. There's a few, like, Gable still around. And, you know, there's a few guys left. But, anyway, this guy kind of came to the top and uh, uh, just really a, a tough physical runner, runs over people, got good hands, can catch the ball in the backfield. But, you know, you got Blunt down there, too. Uh, but, uh, I mean, you're talking about two big backs that should be able to hold up if they rotate those guys in there, but we really like Alan Bradford, the big back uh, out of Southern Cal. The sportscasters are here with Dan Shanka from Our Lads NFL Scouting Service. Just got a couple more minutes left with him today. Wanted to ask you uh, just about one or two questions about the free agent period. Did you think there was any winners or any losers with the team's uh, who had who did a good job signing maybe free agents or just maintaining their own players, and who do you think did a bad job maybe just not really doing anything? Well, you know the the thing is I don't know if you can actually say they did a bad job, but but teams like Cleveland, for instance, you know they 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 have so much money tied up on ex ex coaches and and different things, uh, you know, paying off bad contracts and uh, stuff like that. They were kind of hindered in regards to who they could go after. You know, I mean, that was uh, that was kind of tough. And, and you know, I, I got to go along with, you know, my old team, Philadelphia. Uh, they did a good job, obviously, topped off by um, Nandi Asamoa. That was, uh, of course, the big one, a big, you know, uh, excellent cover corner. Um, and, and uh, hey, you know, Vince Young uh, as a backup quarterback, that's fine. I mean, the other guy, Kafka, who's already there, may end up being – the better backup anyway, because he'd be more consistent. He's not the athlete, but hey, um, athletic ability isn't everything. Sooner or later, you know, you can have your uh, your all gymnasium team and play great bas- pick up basketball games and stuff like that. But you know, you got to be able to do it on the football field. And uh, so, hey, I was part of one of the greatest football teams ever put assembled. Uh, in 2001, when I was with the Washington Redskins, I mean, we had Deion Sanders. Our here's our three corners: Deion Sanders, uh, Green, who's in the Hall of Fame, and uh, Champ Bailey. Okay, there's okay. the three corners. We had Bruce Smith before. You know, everybody at Buffalo knows all about Bruce. Yep. Bruce was one of our rush ends. I mean, uh, we were loaded everywhere. Okay, we didn't have a kicker, and we went eight and eight. So. Uh, I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, uh, Brad Johnson was our quarterback. He won a he won a Super Bowl a few years later with uh, Tampa Bay. So, I mean, we had uh, uh, you know just we had a heck of a football team and uh, better than hey what they had in uh, you know put in Philadelphia right now. But we end up eight and eight. So um, 
all those guys, unless you've got chemistry and um, you play together and you're pulling for each other and things like that, if that doesn't work out, then, uh, you know, you got other problems. And injuries, you know, you got to watch out for injuries. That's, that's the other big thing. All right, well, you can follow Dan. He is at Pro Football Scout. Is that correct on Twitter? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yes, uh, Pro Scout Dan. Pro Scout, Pro Scout Dan. Dan, yep. You can follow him on Twitter, and you can find Our Lads. It's OurLads.com. Nice site. Great depth charts for fantasy football players. I really encourage uh, them to check it out. Uh, anything else you want to plug or talk about before I let you go, Dan? No, I'll tell you what. It's great visiting with you and your listeners and followers and things. And, uh, like, hey, the big thing is um, uh, we put that out there now for the fans so they can have the – be a part of uh, checking out the best depth charts. Uh, clearly, all the NFL teams were subscribing to our depth charts. Believe it or not, they didn't walk down the hallway and check their own depth charts. They, they uh, subscribed to ours. And another thing that's good on our depth charts is there's a button there that say, for instance, you want to run off all the depth charts uh, for all the teams uh, to do your research or what have you. We, we did that really for the pro departments of the different NFL teams. You can hit a button there, and boom, you can run off uh, all 32 teams' uh, depth charts. So uh, there's a lot of good little uh, gizmos there, a lot of good free stuff on our site, okay? All right, thanks a lot, Dan. Hopefully we can do it again sometime soon. Hey, happy to do it. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, the Sportscaster's back with one last segment here, episode 34. I want to thank our guest, Andrew Perloff from the Dan Patrick Show at sportsillustrated.com, Katie Baker from Grantland, and, of course, Dan Shanka from ourlads.com. Also, um, just want a couple, couple reminders out there. Facebook, facebook.com slash the Sportscasters. Twitter, you can find us twitter.com slash sports underscore casters. You can find Don at DonLikeSports. You can find myself at Diversity23. You can always email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com. You can follow our blog, thesportscasters.blogspot.com. And you can find all this information on our website, sports-casters.com. Last matter of business today is pick four. Last week, Don and I humiliated ourselves with one in three weeks. I won the game of the week, Giants over the Phillies, 2-1. to one. I lost Cardinals over the Astros, 5-3. to three. Uh, Beckett and the Red Sox lost to the Kansas City Royals. What can you do? 4-3. <laughs> to three. And the Vancouver soccer team proved why they're the worst team in the league, and the LA Galaxy are the best, losing 4 to nothing. Don also went 1-3. He lost Phillies over Giants. He had the Phillies. That was the game of the week. He also lost the Jeff Beckett game. Uh, Cobb did end up in Arizona, but Williams re-signed with Carolina, and his victory was the Brewers over the Cubs, 4-2. to two. Thank God. Game of the week. Game of the week this week is the Yankees at the Sox. And I came loaded. Uh, we picked the Sunday game at 8.05 on ESPN. I came loaded with stats about this game, so I can prove that I put effort into this and still suck at it. CC Sabathia, sixteen and five, is facing Beckett that day, which I didn't write Beckett's record down. That's nine and four, two point one seven ERA. Nine and four. Here's some stats that all lean heavily in favor of my pick. Boston, eight and one series lead this year against the Yankees, which is incredible. Beckett in games against the Yankees has allowed two earned runs over twenty one innings 
for a .86 ERA and a 3-0 record. Sabathia, meanwhile, who has only five losses all year credited, has three against the Yankees. He's given up 13 runs over 19 innings for a 6.16 ERA. So I'm going to take the Sox, even though I should just throw all those stats away because I'm always wrong anyway. I'm going to pick the Yankees, and I'll tell you why in a bit. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. My host choice this game is the Diamondbacks over the Dodgers Sunday at 410. Uh, The Diamondbacks have Kennedy pitching in his 13-3 record and 3.17 ERA against Kershaw in his 13-4 record and 2.68 ERA. You know I love Kershaw. Uh, my host choice is the Red Sox, pitching Lester 10 and 4 with a 3.23 ERA over the Indians, p- pitching Masterson 8 and 7 with a 2.57 ERA. That's Thursday, August 4th, 7.05. My winning pitcher this week, and I'm hoping I didn't use him, I'm starting to forget who I've used, is Roy Halladay hmm. over the Rockies, uh, who are th- pitching Jason Hamill Wednesday hmm. at 310. I had the same one again this week. It worked well last week. Two weeks in a row, we have the same one. My bold prediction, I'm going to jump ahead of you since I don't have anything to say since you stole my thunder (laughs) on the winning picture. My bold prediction, the Yankees have had their struggles against the Red Sox this year, winning just one of eight. As Don said, I think they will win two of three in Fenway this weekend. My bold prediction, as I wrote it, says, I will whine and complain enough on Twitter before the next podcast that we replace the pick four segment with something else. (laughs) All right. I'm well. waving the white flag. I am getting smoked at this. I am not good. You're it's, 54 and 65. That's not good. It's it's hideous. In games, I get to pick every week. <laughs> I'm 59 and 58, which isn't much better. Oh, it's ugly. Again, we want to thank Andrew Pierloff. We want to thank Katie, Katie Baker. Baker. We want to thank Dan Shanka. Want to say happy anniversary to my mom, and my stepfather. We will be back next week with episode number 35. Don, cue the hip. All right.